0: Welcome, welcome everyone to the Indie Plus Two convention. Uh, this is a really unique and very cool opportunity for gamers all across the world to come together through Google Hangouts, which is which is a really cool uh, you know kind of development in the last couple of years to be able to game this way. And today we're very pleased to be joined uh, on a panel uh, by some awesome indie game developers uh, to talk about gaming and to answer some questions from folks out there in the in the internet's. Um, so we'll just go around, and if everybody could just sort of introduce themselves, uh, say some of the projects that you have worked on and are working on, and uh, then once we're done with that, we'll we'll launch into some questions. So for viewers, you can comment on the YouTube uh, comment thread. We'll get your questions there, or directly onto the uh, Google event. Either way, I'll be uh, reading over those comment threads and pulling out good questions for our guests. So uh, Adam, do you want to go ahead and get us started?
1: Sure. Um, my name is uh, Adam Kogel. Uh, as you can see, um, I am half of the design team at Sage Kobold Productions, uh, and we are currently in the very last moments of uh, birthing a dungeon world, uh, a game we've been working on for two and a half years now. <laughs> yeah, Sage, Sage shares my my feelings. It's we're almost there, and uh, the um. The great thing about the, the whole process, and this sort of speaks to what Mark was saying before, is that we're we're in a time now where we've got the access to this huge community, Google Plus being part of that, Twitter, Facebook, social media in general. Uh, yeah, and it's been huge uh, for us. So, kind of cool to be able to like, give a little back for the Indie Plus. Great. Is
2: me, me sorry. sure. Uh, uh, I am Daniel Solis. Uh, I have most recently published uh, Dope, Pilgrims of the Flying Temple uh, last year. Uh, Right now I'm working on a card game called Bell of the Ball. Uh, That's in playtesting right now. And whoever's watching this may actually be (laughs) playtesters because I send out a lot of prototypes. Uh, And uh, I'm probably best known for tweeting and blogging too much. Uh, I I share lots of weird game ideas that are mostly untested. And they kind of blow up in my face a lot of times. But it's all good fun.
3: Awesome, good. Sage? Uh, Hi, I'm Sage Latora. Dungeon World, also my game. Um, And that pretty much sums it up.
0: Succinct. Um, For once. (laughs) Excellent. Uh, I'm Marcus Truman. I'm uh, one of the owners of Magpie Games. We put out The Play's The Thing very early this year with Daniel's help. Daniel did all the uh, layout and graphic design for The Play's The Thing. Um, And this year we released uh, Our Last Best Hope over the summer uh, for Gen Con, which is a game about disaster movies. Um, And the other half of Magpie Games is in the other room. Marissa, uh, she does all the art and and, uh, art direction for for our books as well. Um, And little known fact... Marissa, myself, and Sage are all from New Mexico. Well. I'm Congratulations. Congratulations. <laughs> Condolences maybe, either way. It looks like I've been told that uh we're only showing one speaker. There we go. Okay. Right. So it looks like it was showing Daniel for everybody speaking, which is awful.
1: Now now a
0: But it looks it looks good now. So Okay, so uh, questions. First question that we've gotten for uh, for everybody is where, like, where do you get your ideas? Seems to be a common question. Where where did the inspiration for games come from? Which, of course, everybody's like, "Oh, it's really hard." Uh, (laughs) Daniel, you look like you're trying to avoid the question. Let's start (laughs) with you. Where where Uh, where, (laughs) did? But let's be more specific. Like, you're working on Bell Follow the Ball, right? So, where did the inspiration for that game come from?
2: Uh, An episode of Firefly, actually. (laughs) Uh, that, uh, the episode of Shindig, uh, the one where they have this fancy party and it breaks down into this, this kind of epic brawl. Um, that was sort of the seed inspiration for a theme about basically a party that gets ruined by someone. Through many iterations over, over the years uh, until finally it's become this sort of very like different sort of, like, sort of theme where it's more that people are uh, rival party planners who are ruining each other's parties and trying to steal guests from each other. So, you know, the original inspiration was from Firefly, but what the game ended up being is actually quite, quite a bit different. Um, but as far as like my other ideas and stuff, I mean, that that's just like one thing that uh that is pretty common as as far as where I get my ideas from. It's like it'll just come from a TV show or reading a book, watching a movie, a lot of movie ideas actually. Um, and uh yeah. Oh, and Doe came from I've Avatar talking Last Airbender,
1: actually. Uh, Great. Yep. Dungeon World is really easy. We got it from somebody else. <laughs> yeah, um, every, every idea in Dungeon World is stolen from somewhere. Um, so we don't have to be creative. We just take things and make games out of them.
3: Pretty much. So a uh, shout-out to Tony Dowler, who originally came up with the idea for Apocalypse D&D, and Vincent Baker for making uh, Apocalypse World. Um, heard of the other game
1: that we based it on—it's called Dungeons and Dragons. I hear it's quite popular.
3: Yeah, people may have heard of it. Okay, like, Dungeons yeah. <laughs> what? Gary Huax. Yeah.
1: Gary But I think you know to be less glib about the answer. I think Daniel makes a good point in that you can pick up game design ideas from just about anywhere. Um, a little while ago, I went on a game design tear after reading um, a novel called Redshirts. Um, oh yeah. About the NPCs of Star Trek. Um, and you just randomly like I finished reading and I thought, you know what, this would make a really cool role playing game and just kinda jammed on it for a bit. And that that stuff happens all the time.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean I think one theme you hear repeatedly is movies and T V, right? Like people are watching something and thinking, This is good, but it would be better if it was like interactive and I could do it like many, many times over and tell many different stories. Uh, and thus, you know, you end up with with uh, a game um, like Doe, right, where you're like, "Man, Avatar is awesome, but I'd like to make it more." Yeah, cool. what, and the kind of
2: interesting thing is that as you go through the adaptation process, you find out like, "All right, what was originally inspiring to me about this movie or t- or TV show or whatnot is not necessarily gameable." Like, uh, so so many so many properties are based on a central heroic figure that is really like. If you hew too close to the source material, then there's nothing really else to play but the hero, whose story you already know. Yeah. So you kind of have to find this, either another story to tell within that universe, or find just the spirit of that setting, and then, and then think, all right, how can I make mechanics to, to fit that spirit, even though the exact setting details are very, very
0: different. Yeah. One thing I would struggle with is, of course, being too similar to things that have come before. What do you, like, especially for Adam and Sage, who are working with, like, multiple influence, like, large influences, what do you guys do to sort of fight off that anxiety?
1: Mm. Well, dungeon, dungeon World is, is and we, we sort of established this internally early on, Dungeon World is part of uh, a canon, not, not just of role-playing games or of sort of dungeon-crawl fiction, but of sort of pop culture stuff in general. Um, so rather than try and fight that, we really embraced it. I mean, you look at the um, like the move names and the magic items, for example, a lot of them are just kind of references to stuff that we like or that resonates uh, with the material. Um, so we, we really embrace it. We didn't try and avoid that. Um, but I think that you know the the trick is to make it feel representative of the thing that you're trying to build without being a straight up copy of it. Um, and Daniel mentioned this, too, is it's it's sort of about finding the spirit of the thing and recreating that rather than making it sort of letter by letter
3: uh, an homage that way. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we, we've gone out of our way to make it be something that fits into uh, a larger kind of dialogue, hopefully. Um, and that's been very deliberate on our part, because I think that a lot of role-playing games tend to um, kind of silo themselves and try and cut out the obvious influences from other things and be like, well, this is a role-playing game and it's a game and maybe there's one direct influence. Um, Whereas we've tried to just kind of uh, use what somebody once called the the pop culture cesspool um, and make the most of it (laughs) Um, and just kind of fish something good out of it, hopefully, uh, by really embracing it, not trying to be like, oh, you know, this is serious. Uh, Just kind of taking what we can.
2: Yeah, I I, mean, I think it's, it's not
3: actually that hard to come up with a, a,
2: an original theme or original setting. Uh, but finding one that's actually making a new one that's also compelling is really, really hard. Right. And oftentimes, you'll find just more reward making a compelling setting that uses the pop culture references as a shorthand that everyone knows already. It's like, all right, we're adventurers. We're going on a quest. You know the drill here's the cool stuff that's a, that we're doing as a part of this overall structure that everyone's already familiar with.
3: Yeah, the $1 bookshelves at Gen Con are stuffed with all the campaign settings that people have made based on these great ideas. Um, but if you can't give a hook there, uh, you know, no matter how many great ideas you packed in there, it's just not going to take off and you're going to be at the dollar bookshelf a, a year later. That booth, the Gen Con, is the
1: most depressing part of the convention. Where you see, oh, I know. for anyone who's not familiar, there's there's usually one or two of these booths that's like a, a huge set of bookshelves just filled with RPGs, and they have a giant sign that says like three for five bucks, and you're like, awesome. You know, I don't care how crappy these are. I'm gonna be able to find three there for five dollars. Like no problem. You spend an hour looking through the shelves, and you barely make it out with two, and you just feel so bad about. Everything, especially like <laughs> the late '90s.
0: <laughs> yeah, there was the boom, right? Like when when everybody was like, "I can write about elves and and." I need and another companion. guy. goblins. Right. Yeah. That's that's tough. No, I think I think Daniel's right. It's really hard to think of something that people. It's it's not just about what people want to play, but that people will be emotionally invested in. Right, like they'll not just the like the various they'll
3: want definitions of emotion. Yeah, I mean, I think people tend to hear "emotionally invested" and think that it's like. Deep drama that you're gonna cry tears about, but uh, like laughing about it is definitely an emotional investment as well.
0: Oh, dude, the first time I picked up Dungeon World, I was like, "Oh, I can play a fighter and I get this cool sword." I think that's emotionally invested. Like, you know, like yeah, I, yeah. I am I am eager to play this game. Eagerness is a great well, emotion. There's, yeah,
1: there's, there's as much validity in in embracing the emotional state of like a thirteen year old discovering Tolkien for the first time, or like an eight year old playing a game about a robot's birthday, like, it's... It, they don't all have to be big, serious games. Um, I mean, those are good, too. They, they have their own niche. But, yeah, I mean, a lot of people will see story games as having to be uh, primarily sort of mature
3: and, and intense. Um, but they don't necessarily have to be. Right? Well, I think that we... Part of the downside of being indie, labeled indie or whatever... Is that we get grouped into that a lot, and people are like, "Oh, your game's going to tell a story about dungeon adventurers and their like deep feelings," and we're not really doing that, uh, and especially not the word "story" because that comes with all kinds of connotations. I had to tell Adam to stop using the word "story" and do a find, like a find through all of our text, just to make sure that we didn't use that word.
0: Wow, interesting. Well, on that note, you know, you're talking about people sort of misunderstanding. One of the questions we got asked is, "What were some of the obstacles you guys faced?" when you first started designing games. So, I mean, what working was... Working with Adam? We're... <laughs> 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 how did you get over that, man? What did you... What did, How did you...
3: Oh, <laughs> well, I don't know. I'm still working on it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Any thoughts, obstacles?
3: Uh,
2: I, well, I, I can kind of talk about the, the whole story thing. Um, the... Uh, one of the interesting things that I've, I've kind of run into a lot of times is, uh, in, in, uh, kind of marketing a, a game, uh, you run into this uh, challenge where if you have something that is, uh, you know, kind of half, halfway in between genres for, like for example, you say you have a story game, which people who even know what a story game is have their own preconceived notions of what that, what that's going to be. Um, however, you know, mature that, that theme will be or whatnot. Um, but then you have, like, people who like kids games or party games or things like that, uh, and they have their own expectations of what that's going to be. And if you have something that's kind of in between, uh, it's really hard to kind of just really encapsulate, just find a pitch for that uh, that doesn't start getting too deep into minutia right up front and, and kind of overwhelming uh, a newcomer with, like, a bunch of details that they don't really need to know.
0: Yeah. I I think that one of the challenges is trying to move away from your local gaming group to a broader audience. Because with your local gaming group, you can kind of, like, say, okay, you three guys I game with all the time, you're going to try my game, and I can kind of badger you about it for a week or so, and you'll do it. And regular people are not interested in that. Like, they're not going to sit through your badgering for that week until you convince them. You need to be able to convince them in the first, like, 30 seconds to a minute that this is going to be worth, this is going to be fun.
3: Well, that convincing, I think a lot of people, um, I've, I've had a discussion with some other indie designers who get frustrated when a game doesn't, um, people aren't interested in it, and that's really actually the first test of your game. That's not like a test of something other than your game. That's a test of your game. If you can't get people interested in your game, it doesn't make any difference how like, awesome it is or how great a time they'll have. If you can't make it appealing, uh, that's not an advertising problem. It's a problem with the, the product itself.
2: Yeah, actually, um, I was working on Doe for, for like two years off and on uh, in various iterations, and I had a real hard time just find, finding playtesters. And then kind of uh, on a whim, I posted the, the very first iteration of rules for Happy Birthday Robot, and almost immediately got people excited about it, and, and people were voluntarily just, just posting their own stories that they told while you know, playing Happy Birthday Robot in like a, a forum thread. And that was when I was like, all right, I just got to put dough aside because clearly the thing that's actually working right now is Happy Birthday Robot, and and that's what's actually working. So, you know, in in some cases you just kind of have to recognize what people are actually digging and and pursue that, and that's okay.
3: Yeah, um, and this is people, the other feedback that I've heard from people is that, oh, it's easier for you because you have a successful game, but, like, the number of things that I've made that are unsuccessful, uh, you just don't know it because they're <laughs> unsuccessful. Um, yeah. That's not
1: a problem that I have, Sage. The only game that I've ever made was a total hit, so... Yeah,
3: see, Adam... I had failed stuff before this. Adam just kind of, Actually, Adam played one of them. That's how we met.
0: Um, I but, think yeah, I Adam had- just... <laughs> I do think of you guys as like the Matt Damon and Ben Affleck of the gaming community. <laughs> like you, like you write one script and you're like, "Oh, look, we're superstars, right?" You well, so the
3: question is, which one of us is Ben Affleck and which one is Matt Damon? Because they're significantly. <laughs> you're different Matt Damon.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's true. Like you, uh, if you, it, it is tempting to kind of see it as like, "Oh, well, you wrote this one thing and then it was successful." But the reality is. You know, both of you have probably been involved in some degree of like hacking games and coming yeah. up at the table. And I think what a lot of game designers don't realize is the process starts a long a long way before you start to think about publishing something. Um, you know, you have you have like the the act of like inventing something new at the table, or you know, writing your own setting, that kind of stuff. I mean, I think a lot of game designers, um, you know, when they were ten, rewrote Dungeons and Dragons to some degree. Oh right?
1: yeah. Yeah, role role playing games uh they they intrinsically have that kind of behavior, right? Like there's always the players and the GMs making their own stuff and, and they're hacking games without even realizing they're doing it. Right? So we're part of a hobby that engenders game design from the ground up, which is really awesome.
3: Well, and the the road to a successful game is paved with unsuccessful games, um, which is part of the downside to being like an established publisher who has to have games come out at certain times to hit goals and has to support certain lines and stuff, is that then you have to make that road to your final thing much shorter. Um, Whereas we can have a lot of corpse games along the way um, that will just step over. We're, We're building a floating corpse bridge across the river, kind of. Wow. Awesome.
1: That. I, think, I think that's what's, what's helpful. About, in the corpses of bad games—I like that. <laughs> well,
2: it's helpful. I mean, now that um, I mean, I, I don't know uh, if say, say, John, I mean, you can you can kind of attest to this too. I think that, or, and Mark, you too. Once you've once you've actually published a game, that at least gives you a little bit more crit and and maybe gives you the the a little bit more access to people who would actually be interested in even testing out your second game, like. Yep. I mean, right. it 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 cuts it cuts down some, some red tape i think or or some apprehension that, that some folks may have
3: Well i think that that can be a downside too because it means that you don't have that really tough first step of having to know that the idea is good enough itself
0: mm-hmm. um like yeah you know this is so this is actually i had a lot of these thoughts in mind when we did the kickstarter for our last best hope which was that you know i had gotten some people to play test it and there seemed to be a pretty positive reaction but because people thought of me as like a game designer, I think they were more interested in trying things out. And so when we put it up on Kickstarter, I actually was kind of explicit about saying, I've gone up to this point in the design process, and before I waste like the next six months of my life working on this project, I want to know if anybody's interested in it. And so we actually explicitly used Kickstarter, sort of like the opposite from how you guys used it. You guys built up this enormous following and community. And we just sort of got out there and said, OK, we, people know us a little bit, but we want to see if this idea kind of has legs. Um, and the response was so positive. I was like, "Oh, I'm totally good to spend six months of my life working on this project." Um, but there, it, I think it kind of highlighted for me the really different ways that you can use that site, which the four of us have all have all made use of. Um, and makes me wonder about, you know, how best to sort of test that, like, you you know, using that or other other places to sort of test the reaction. And maybe it really comes down to like proportional reaction. Because I know Daniel posts a lot of things on on his blog, and not all of them get the same response, right? No. Like some, right. Some things are like totally ignored, and then some things people are like, "Man, hundred comment thread."
2: Yeah, if you could figure out what is going to get the most comments, I'd be really excited about that because <laughs> I have no
3: idea.
0: Right. Cool. Um, so one of the questions that we got asked was, "How do you cultivate that community?" You know, you have sort of some people around your game or your games that are sort of, uh, you know, part of the Daniel Solis community or the Dungeon World slash, you know, Sage Cobalt Productions community. What sort of steps do you guys take to cultivate that community?
1: Give shit away for free. Uh, Exactly. Don't don't be afraid of people pirating your stuff. Like, playtest versions, whatever, just throw it into the universe and tell people, go nuts, play with this, take it apart. Uh, That, I think, for us, bigger than than anything else uh, was instrumental in getting people to playtests and getting people excited about the game. Um, you know, We could be really uh, excited about it ourselves, post about it on Twitter all the time, and try and build up just on hype, but without the, you know, the, the free playtest PDFs that we were giving away, it would never have happened. It just wouldn't have been possible.
3: Well, you don't want to push too much. Um, I think the thing that gets people the least interested is when you tell them explicitly, hey, I've got this new thing that you should check out. Um, it's better like, uh, to let things grow organically, and then you kind of start to hit this critical mass and it just keeps growing. Um, which is definitely what we saw, at least. There's certainly a,
2: a factor of time in, involved in that, too, because uh, you guys had had two and a half years roughly, or longer, yeah. of people, of you, know, of you guys really actively playtesting it at conventions. People were had exciting stories to tell, even if it was in like an old, out-of-date version. People still could share that story, that experience that they had, mm-hmm. and, and say, oh, man, I can't wait to play Dungeon World again, even though it could be a completely different game by the time they play it again. Um, yeah. They just know that feeling, and like you know, throughout the entire process, you were always trying to shoot for that experience. Um, and, I mean, that was certainly the case with Doe. Like, um, the, uh, I had about good, uh, three or four years, almost, of, of development, off and on, um, much more intensive development towards the end there. Um, but, I mean, throughout that time, I think that was probably... A lot of people attributed the success of, of Doe back then to having had that long lead time um, and, and just, you know, just a long time of people interested in the setting uh, and wanting to see it in actual print.
3: Giving people a way to interact with the game. Because So with Doe and Happy Birthday Robot, there's kind of these artifacts of play that are left over. Uh, in particular, Happy Birthday Robot, you've got, like, this entire story that you can, that's written down that you can tell. Um, with Dungeon World, we made it really easy for people to add their own stuff, and the, the more people can get involved and contribute their own way, even if it's not officially, um, those artifacts of play make a huge difference.
0: Totally, and you want to be really supportive of the efforts that do come out of your community. You know, we had uh, we had somebody who created character sheets for our last best hope. I actually didn't really want to have a character sheet. I wanted it to be like sort of distributed across the table. So there's like index cards and sort of like different ideas that are that are sort of more interactive. But he created this character sheet and then like a bunch of other people were really excited about it. And I was like, Yeah, we'll host it on the site, we'll give you credit. Like I'm thrilled. It was like the best day of my life when I opened it up and it was like all there. And he had taken like all the logos and pieces and put them together in cool ways. And I was like, this is awesome. And I think it would be very easy as a publisher to be like, wait a second, you violated like all of our copyright or some crazy, you know, like very, very negative message. And I think Adam's right, just give it away, let people remix it, let people rework it, and that gives people a whole new level of investment into what you do and into the games you make. It's definitely a good measure of, of,
2: like Sage was saying, you know, if people are excited enough about your property to actually do any kind of remixing, that is a good thing.
1: Yeah, well, it it takes a certain amount of energy just to play a game, to give enough of a shit to be like, I'm going to read the PDF, get my friends together, roll some dice, But then it's a whole other level of commitment to the game to be like, I like this so much, I'm going to make my own thing for it. Like, that's... Once you can get people to do that, then you know you're on to something that people care enough to take it apart and make their own stuff.
0: That's awesome. Good. Well, um, we have some other questions. Let's see. One of them that I think is sort of related to this discussion is, have people used your games in unexpected ways? Uh, Like, you know, have they ever sort of surprised you by the way they've used your game? This could get dirty. <laughs> uh,
2: I, I can speak for Happy Birthday Robot. Um, uh, in Happy Birthday Robot's case, uh, one thing I, you know, I, I expected something that would be some, that would be very sweet and and kind of you know childlike. Right. But when you get a bunch of uh, like heavy drinking
1: con goers uh, late at night playing that game, it gets dark. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't. I can't count the number of times I've heard the phrase "sex dungeon world." Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the riddles in particular, uh, Paul and Chan Riddle are, are fans of that that phrase and the various extrapolations thereof. Uh,
3: yeah, the people contacts about all kinds of crazy projects that. Um, are somehow tangentially related to Dungeon World, um, and some of that is kind of a Kickstarter phenomenon. Is that um, once people can see how successful you are, they may want to reach the same audience, or you know, you have an inroads to this audience that they want to contact. So people, we found we've had a few people contact us in ways that it was clear that um, what they most wanted was our audience, kind of. Yeah, oh, which is a really weird spot to be in. Like that, we just want to make a thing and give it to people. Like we don't want to be. Yeah, it it, it isn't for us really. Can you say more about that? Uh, I don't know.
1: <laughs> Without being specific, we've had a lot of very strange offers of cross promotion by way of the Kickstarter and our Facebook fan page. People just oh. emailing us about projects that they're working on and being like, "Yeah, this would be a totally great fit for Dungeon World, and we'll like put them together." But it's it's never really, like, a good fit, it's just very sort of strange, um, which, I mean, again, it sounds like we're complaining about being successful, but it's, it's interesting to see that kind of, like, connection that people are making, uh, and again, whether it's just seeing something that's popular and wanting to kind of, like, be a part of it, or whether it's actually some, like, legitimate thought process where they have this idea, uh, is different, but we're in a great position because so much of the game is free, we can say, you know what, if you want to do this, go for it, here you go. Have
3: at it. You know, we can't, we can't
1: officially endorse it necessarily, but here's the material you need to do this thing you want to do. So. Well,
3: and a lot of people, uh, I think, see Dungeon World as... Um, their first instinct is to use it as a stand-in, like a generic D&D. Like, oh, we don't want to talk to Wizards of the Coast because we're never going to license from them, so we want to use your game. And it, they're not really interested in our game. They're interested in a game that resembles D&D. <laughs> um, which is a really odd thing because then they'll come to us with these ideas of like these huge detailed campaign settings and stuff and we're like that's not, that's not really our thing uh, like you're thinking of a different game but um, good luck <laughs> with
0: it like it's clear they've never read Dungeon World
3: or they have and they haven't played it or like they're they're understanding it differently than maybe we think it is, I, I don't know I mean nothing against them they're, they've got great ideas but um they're not necessarily, I think, looking for the things that the actual game text can give them.
1: Well, and, and again, it, it comes down to the whole, like, because we're giving so much of it away, because so much of it is uh, Creative Commons, we can we can rest easily and say, you know what, if, if you want to make something, you're you're totally free to. We would love that. And maybe it'll turn out to be totally awesome, but, you know, we're obviously really busy with getting the final game done that we can't always participate in. Right. Absolutely.
0: Um, you know, we... So, one of the it's like so on that same question of like when fans do kind of interesting things, um, when I play tested our last best hope a bunch, um, mostly it was with new gamers. I really wanted to create a product that would appeal to new gamers, so I would drag people in from like graduate school or other places who are not like used to role playing. I really had to start from like you roll dice kind of explanations, right? And um, when I and those people, I don't know if it was just because they're here at a public policy school because uh, I go to graduate school for public policy or like. Any number of other things, they tended to approach it kind of seriously. And then like then I went to a con and I started playing it with with people at a con to play test it, and like things went like nuts really fast. They were like, What's gonna destroy the earth? Oh, it's gonna be like Godzilla, and now we're in like a total B movie and people like have accents and you're like, Whoa, this is not this is not at all like what I intended. And so I was I was very interested in the way people sort of like leapt into their own understanding of the game. Um, and very much like you, like Daniel was talking about with Happy Birthday Robot, like, it got adults and difference very quickly. Like, the genre was not a very strict rule uh, in sort of the original the original understanding of the mechanics. Um, and that really inspired me to try to, like, I liked that, but I wanted to sort of rein it in a little bit, so I like, try to be a little bit more explicit about it. And it made me think about, you know, Fiasco, which is obviously one of the big influences for Our Last Best Hope, is really great about driving home, like, this is the kind of game you're supposed to be playing here. Um, and I think there's kind of a cool tension like that we've kind of talked about today about, you know, you want people to be excited and remix it and do things differently, but you also want people to sort of play it how it's intended a little bit, right? Like, so, you know, with Dungeon World, there's some sense of, like, this is the kind of game you're supposed to have. Um, and, and you want to give this baseline so when people innovate on it, they actually come up with something new as opposed to just sort of mucking around and sort of throwing rules sort of left and right. So I think it's an interesting tension. Uh, between, you know, giving people enough of a sense that they can rewrite and remix to make it their own, um, but also providing them with a strong enough baseline that it's actually meaningful the way it's written or the way it's created.
3: Well, and it's been really interesting for us because we've uh, put it under a license that basically is uh, irrevocable. Like, what we've released under that license we can't take back or anything. Right. So we deliberately removed ourselves as, like, decision-makers from the process. Which is both super freeing because we don't have to worry about being like arbiters of taste and like, oh, this is a good supplement, this one isn't. But it's also kind of scary. Like I'm waiting for like the, the horrible thing that we hate, but which can use our system because it's open. Um, and that one obviously we won't promote, but who knows? It's probably coming. Or somebody listening to this just opened up a Word doc or Google doc or something <laughs> and started writing, like, "What is
0: Sage going to hate?" and Sage hate world. So, another question we got was: Has has any um, have you ever had a time where your love for something turned to hate in (laughs) game design, where you actually have that moment where uh, you just can't look at anything anymore, something anymore? And what did you, Uh, Adam? Are you going to say me, or am I going to say you?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I I can't. I blocked him off my screen. I have a hard time hearing his voice now. Um, No, no, there's. There's, there's definitely stuff in... Well, it's not in the game anymore because we hate it, but there there's old stuff in previous versions of Dungeon World that we completely loved at the time but have grown out of in the process of, of developing and I think that's totally normal. Um, I think that anyone who's designing a game and who even, like, nothing is sacred, even coming down to the sort of core mechanic of the game you're designing, if you find that you hate something and you can't stand it, don't be afraid to throw it away. Uh, it's, it's something that I think people struggle with, obviously because if you sink a lot of time and energy into something and you want to keep it around, you think that it's going to be worth something in the end. Um, and where that line is drawn depends obviously on the person and the design in question, but being willing to chuck stuff out is,
3: is huge, obviously. Yeah. you got to be able to kill your darlings. Mm-hmm. Um, a specific example for Dungeon World would probably be escalating HP. I mean, we used to do the typical d thing where like each level you get more HP. Um, and this leads, first of all, it's a weird fit because we're kind of fiction first and like trying to fictionally justify how you can now get hit among, in the face a bunch more times or whatever. That's wrong
0: like, at fourth level. My <laughs> head is enormous. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so that was already weird. And then it led to us spending a lot of ta- design time that could have been spent better on other stuff basically just doing math. Like, okay, well, if it's going to increase this much at this level, monsters have to do this much more damage. On, like spreadsheets. We did not want to have to design the spreadsheets, but that's what well, we there, were. There
1: was a spreadsheet for a while.
2: Yeah, I
3: could probably make it public just so people can laugh at it.
2: Yeah. I, I'm in spreadsheet hell right now with another game, but I, so I know what you mean.
3: How did you resolve that? Uh, HP doesn't escalate anymore. <laughs> yeah, we just threw it away. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know. well, what
0: about I What mean, about, and I know Daniel, you've gone through this, what about times where you hate? You start to hate the whole game? Oh. You're like, it just sort of overwhelms you. How do you work through that kind of problem? Um, I mean, it's, you know, it, it's, I think any creative goes through that process where, whatever,
2: you know, whether you're writing a novel or making a movie or, or you know, doing whatever, uh, game, game, game design is kind of no different. You, if you're doing it long enough, there's going to be a point where you're just throw up your hands, flip the table, and you're just done with, with this forever. And, and, you know, you kind of go for a walk or you, you uh, eat a sandwich and, and then you kind of get
0: back to work. Um, I love that image of the peaceful Daniel Solis, like upending <laughs> a table. <laughs> cool. well, I and mean, they're to do it live.
2: Yeah, <laughs> I mean, in in Doe's case, um, I think uh, there was something that um, uh, kind of kind of in Doe's escalating HP, kind of an example. Uh, there was, for a long time, this the, the toughest time just finding playtesters, and once I found playtesters, so much time was being sunk into character creation, which people were having fun doing, but it took such a long time that by the time uh, it was time to actually play the game, people were kind of like already creatively spent, because character creation was this own little subsystem that required quite a bit of creativity, in it. and so we never got a, a chance to actually test the game. Uh, and so my solution to this at the end ended up being just taking out character creation entirely like there's minimal creative effort involved in character creation now all it is just you make up a name and then interpret that name that's it no stats no nothing Um, and that was probably the most freeing step of the entire uh, development process of, of just kind of losing that basic assumption that you needed a character creation system of any kind
3: yeah, assumption is a good word for it. Once we lost the HP assumption, like, everything else fell into place. Like, monsters, all of a sudden we had this great monster creation mechanic, and it's great stuff. And an interesting note is that while we're talking about, I, I agree with you, kind of pushing through it, um, there are other people who work entirely differently. Uh, a friend of mine does it this way. When he isn't feeling something anymore, it's dead until he either feels like it again, or it stays dead. Um, and some people work that way. Uh it's not the way that I like to work, but it works for some people. I mean, okay, I'll just say his name. is John Harper. I mean, he's made great stuff. Obviously, it works for him, but uh, the number of things that, like, we played one session of, and they just kind of get abandoned, or, like, he tells me this great idea because we game every week. He'll tell me a great idea in the car on the way to gaming, and then I never hear from it again. <laughs> um, that, that happens all the
0: time, and that's his process, and that's great. It's like um, a tragedy though. Like like all of you should just like you should just like have a blog with like John Harper's ideas, right? Oh you just gave me my new Tumblr.
3: Like i I could go on about like the Skyrim inspired one and yeah, like John Harper to go
1: as far as to write a blog post would be an effort beyond human belief anyway. So <laughs> I probably guess that they just percolate in his brain and then disappear when they're not needed anymore.
0: Well, I was actually assigning the task to Sage. I think Sage. Yeah, that's was. Why I was like, oh, so you're going to be his assistant then. His <laughs> well, Marty, you're assistant. <laughs> right. Actually, I, to be honest, I'm much more in that vein. Like, if I if I'm struggling with something, 99 percent of the time, I'm just like, I'm done for now. Like, I'll I'll come back to it. I I have other things to work on, and and a lot of times, I guess I do circle back to the same things, but like. I mean, I've been working on uh, Eternity for, like, two years, like, the, which, and with not a lot of playtesting. Like, I just sort of, like, sit and look at it, I'll do a couple of sessions, and, and I'm like, oh, this totally works, and then realize, like, oh, my God, the effort of the whole thing is so big, I really need to, like, gear myself up to tackle this enormous game. Um, and then I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll work on this other thing instead <laughs> for a little bit longer. <laughs> So I, I think there's something to be said for like the percolating model. But yeah, I mean, you know like people have just radically different approaches to, to how they resolve that tension. You but know, I one, think one the tension I is actually
2: Daniel, go. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, no, oh, just one last little note on that. Um, it can, if anyone's kind of like trying to figure out what works for them. Uh, you know, it's far easier to to do the John Harper model uh, than than to do the just push-through-it model. Um, Especially if you just have, like, if you're more inclined to be prolific and just have a bunch of ideas, you know, don't be afraid to do that, because John Harper certainly made a name for himself just focusing on putting out an interesting idea with, uh, with like, minimal form and frame to it. Um, and again, relying on the shorthand that everyone in his community already already knows. He doesn't have to fill in all those blanks so people already know, like, you know, roll diets, do this, do this, do that. And all he has to do is just add the little spice that is different, and people can just kind of play with that. So how many iterations have has Lady Blackbird been through? And it's still just a fairly slim document, and, and there's just tons and tons of stuff people have written for it.
3: Yeah, I mean, the document itself has only been through, like, two or three major versions. Um, there was... The at least two sequels that he talked about doing, both of which I think even went to some writing,
0: but uh, nobody'll ever see them. So, well, and they they spin off to like other people's stuff, right? I mean, like our last best hope is definitely heavily yeah. influenced by Danger Patrol, which is like this half-finished, awesome John Harper document that like I wrote uh, this sort of terrible and crummy version of our last best hope for the Game Chef competition, and somebody was like, oh, this mechanic here is kind of like this Danger Patrol thing. And when I read Danger Patrol, I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Who is this guy? And then I was like, why is this not finished? And it was like, oh, because this is where this product is. It's gotten up to this point, and John's not really sure what to do with it, and so he's just going to kind of leave it. And that let me sort of pick up some of the pieces and say, oh, I can do something with this part. And, And I think that really heralds this sort of, like, community we have of all these different people who are throwing ideas out there and are happy to sort of trade brushes and, you know, paint palettes and just sort of, like... You know, give each other cool ideas about what's happening. Like, you know, what 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 you can do with gaming and with mechanics. I like that phrase. Trading brushes. Is that (laughs) this sum it up pretty well? I like that. (laughs) Cool. Good. So uh, let's see some other questions. Um, We got at least I think two questions about Kickstarter. Uh, Obviously, something people are people are interested in. Um, What? What do you guys think about Kickstarter, not in the community aspect, but more in the business aspect, in terms of, you know, do, did it work for you in terms of uh, actually producing a game? Was it helpful? You know, give us some sort of, like, hard-nosed thoughts about your experiences with, with Kickstarter. Uh, if we
3: had tried to host anything like that ourselves, even just like a normal pre-order like, ignoring the fact that we were able to print better because we had more money up front, et cetera, et cetera. If we had just like printed 100 books ourselves, put them up for order, our site wouldn't have been able to take the load of people coming for it. So, I mean, just even in the technology sense, um, huge benefit to us. How many units did you end up uh, selling? Uh, do you? Well, OK, it depends on what you mean by unit. Um, so we've got physical books and we've got PDFs. Um, Call it both. Okay. Uh, so we had how many backers did we have? I'm looking it up right now. Three thousand? Yeah, something that. Internet.
2: Well my main question is that I mean it's it's something that you also now using using that campaign, you could also tell like what you, how many units you should you should be producing, regard you know, whether it's physical or PDF or whatnot. I mean if if you had just printed out one hundred. And sell so the pre-order, you would have run out so quickly, and and missed out on the on the you know bulk rate and disc
1: um, scaling discounts that you could got you could have gotten if you had gotten to the higher number. Have you know? Yeah. yeah, Kickstarter is huge, obviously. I mean, that's that's sort of become common knowledge. It's a big deal, um, but I think some people see it as a magic wand that they can just wave over their game, and it'll conjure more copies, mm. um, which is a, a big mistake, I think. Um, because there's so much that goes into a Kickstarter campaign long before it's launched uh, that, that you don't see, right? You don't see all of the prep that was done in advance. Um, and then on the, on the other end, you know, it's the fact that it exists. It's a useful tool for the way that some people do business, but it's not for everybody. You know, I, I don't see every game in the future being crowdfunded that way, um, especially with companies that, companies, groups of, of publishers that have, uh, some experience in the in the space already, you know, that have some capital from earlier games. Um, you know, we'd, we'd probably go back to Kickstarter again, but who knows on the, the fourth or fifth game if that would still be a model
3: that would work for us, you know. Um, like I do 2,455 uh, 2, people. So right. 2,455 units, roughly. A few of those are uh, vendor, or you know, retailers who got more than one copy, but...
0: You have about 800 backers that are PDF-only, right? So, Yes, we have a lot of PDF-only backers. Yeah, so it's about, I mean, still, that's like 1,700, 1,600 physical copies, right? So that's- Considerably more
1: than we would have anticipated, I think, without having that month of, of lead-up.
3: Yep. And so just to chime in with a slight downside is that um, it, you have to manage expectations to some degree. Like, we thought that we were very ready when we went to the Kickstarter. And it was just like, oh, we've got a little bit of art and editing, and then, you
1: <laughs> know, well,
3: these people. Funny,
1: I got an update. I got an update last night um, from uh, Andy Kikowski, who's doing uh, Ten Revancho Zero, and he said, uh, in in that update, he was like, the this is this is the the traditional RPG. It's gonna be late update.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and it's, it's true. Like it's becoming kind of a kind of like a trope of Kickstarter, and that. No matter how far ahead you think that you've planned for your game, there's always stuff that comes up. And I think Kickstarter, in and of itself, as a company and as a platform, they're struggling with that too, uh, with with how much onus to put on the creators to to hold to dates and how to kind of track that um, that progress. And I think I think we're going to see Kickstarter change over the next little while. I think that the tool itself. Uh, is going to change and the way that it allows you to communicate with your backers is going to change too. When
2: I first started with Kickstarter, they, they didn't even have dates on the tiers. Like, huh. they, that, that's a, that was a good I use Kickstarter. we may Daniel, have lost Daniel. Daniel saw us frozen in time. Yeah. and
0: Kickstarter have <laughs> Kickstarter bandwidth. <laughs> you used up all the bandwidth, guys. <laughs> <laughs> the two, the two I, well, let me Well, I mean, I can talk a little bit about my experience with it. I mean, I think part of it is about, um, and I think I, th- I think I stole this phrase from Daniel, so I'll just channel Daniel. It's, a, it's about worst case success, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, as the projects get bigger, um, what you're responsible for just kind of like keeps exponentially growing. And you want to give people stretch goals, and you want to give them cool stuff, and you want to add new art. And and some degree, like, we've been very lucky at sort of always hitting the, the amount of money we wanted, sort of. So, like, with, with The plays, is the Thing, we put it up for $500, and we got to 5000 which sounds awesome, and it is awesome, except that it's still very manageable. Like <laughs> still so, like, we had, like, 150 books to send, and, like, it was very, very, very manageable to do. And there was no point where I was sort of panicking about how much stuff needed to be done. Um, we didn't really know what we were doing at all, but had nice, like a nice system of support from Daniel and other people who had sort of been down the road before. And then with our last best hope, we got up to like you know ten, twelve thousand dollars. Great, exactly where we wanted to be. I can't imagine what it would be like to turn around and be like, oh, this is a seventy-five thousand dollars Kickstarter now. Wow, that's that's we have to deliver two thousand to two thousand backers, et cetera. Yep. <laughs> Daniel's talked about this before that, like you know, he has games that he he like is not putting up on Kickstarter because he's worried that that the scope of the project will exceed his ability to deliver on the project. And I Thank think you me. know that's something that all of us creators should keep in mind. And kick and it's important for backers to know Kickstarter has no zero no like obstacles like to that process, right? Like it's it is very easy. Welcome back, Daniel. Hey. You know, it's a hurricane. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was just giving the giving everybody the pitch about worst-case success. And sort of oh, like, yes. I like, love the that. The Kickstarter could sort of just blow up, and then you're sort of left with trying to put the pieces together, um, it, you know, perhaps beyond your expectations. Um, and so part of it is about really thinking, like, you know, what, how is this project going to grow? And you guys, I think, were very ready. I mean, I think it's a testament to how ready you were, that you're still, like, that things have not gone off the rails. but like, you know, it, it, is, it is stressful to add an extra, you know, to start talking about ordering thousands of copies. Because if you make a mistake, it's compounded. Like, yep. so much bigger than you could possibly imagine. So. Yeah, I mean, but- the number of t-shirts we have was so
3: large that I was stuck in my house because they blocked my door with all the boxes. <laughs> like, just the scope of this thing is not what I was expecting.
2: No t-shirts. No t-shirts. Anyone who's playing a Kickstarter, let me just tell you, no t-shirts. But ours are
3: so awesome.
1: I, okay. No, we we managed to luck out with with the the shirts um you know we had uh, we had someone lined up to to do them and we got a, a way better offer from an awesome company that um they uh they're called uh Forward Printing. They do all of fan Gamers t-shirts. They just mailed us out of the blue like literally unsolicited just emailed us and said, "Hey, like we saw your Kickstarter. You guys want to want us to do some shirts for you?" And they they were awesome. Um I think that's something that I would, I would say is advice for people is those relationships with your vendors, try and get them before the, the Kickstarter, even if you end up replacing them or whatever because the scale is too high, but if you don't have someone lined up to make your dice and print your books and whatever, and you, you start doing the Kickstarter, you have no idea of scale in advance, and you're, you know, you're going to have to be scrambling for someone who can fulfill that stuff. So there's a lot more than just making the game that goes into being ready for a Kickstarter.
2: Yeah, I think what, what, I think what most people kind of, um, at least what, I think people know this now, but back when I was getting started, um, I think a lot of people had the misperception that Kickstarter was either something you do to start a project or to end a project. And I think people are realizing now that Kickstarter is very much in the middle of the project. Like, there's a lot of development that leads up to it, a lot of promotion that goes up into it. Then there's this one-month, super-intense period where you're driving all this traffic that you've built up and kind of cashing in all of your chips. Mm-hmm. And then once that's done, you got a whole other mess to work with after after that. And you have to actually do fulfillment and, and actually, you know, uh, kind of fulfill on all the promises that you made during the really exciting months <laughs> that you had there, where you're getting an email every, every minute. That, yeah. I don't you money. yeah, my wife was already in
3: my garage, and uh, she's dreading when the books get here. Um, I'm actually thinking about how to make my house into the most efficient fulfillment space possible. I think we're going to end up with me and Adam and a bunch of other people like lined up through the house doing a construction line
0: of right. um, just putting stuff together because we have got so much stuff. Yeah. Well, and there's such a pressure. Like when you're in it, you're like, oh my god, these people are amazing, and we should just we should just do all this stuff for them. Like we we have the money for it. Let's just do it. And like and like it's it's very you know to those designers out there who are thinking about doing kickstarters. Just be really ready. Like Think in advance about what you might want to offer, price it out, and then sort of hold yourself fast to it. Because, for example, with the Play is the Thing, we we said, okay, well, we're going to go ahead and mail a book to teachers. So like, if you bought a book, we'll mail a book to a teacher for you. And we were looking at the prices for the books, and I was like, oh, we're saving so much on printing the books, it's not a problem at all. And then we totally forgot to calculate shipping. Oh, my God. Right, yeah. Like, it was just like... <laughs> Just, like, total, like, whiff, just did not even consider it, right? And so it worked out fine. Like, we had, we asked people, where do you want the books to be shipped? And not everybody took advantage of it. So it worked out. Like, some people that were eligible, they just weren't interested in having a book shipped. So we shipped, like, we shipped probably twice as many books as we got requests for because we actually were like, okay, well, we didn't get that many requests. Let's go out and find some schools. So we found some schools and sent books to people just sort of unrequested. Um, but, like that could have if we had like blown up and gotten a huge number of backers and then had to like figure out how to manage this enormous shipping cost we didn't account for like the promises you make are not rational like the, it's so hard yeah, the,
1: the challenge of scalability with a, a kickstarter is, is very kind of dangerous because if you make a mistake like that on a large enough scale you're you're very quickly approaching the point where you're not making any money on the kickstarter <laughs> and then it starts to you know impact you uh, negatively, so having that kind of like awareness of sort of Stockholm syndrome when it comes to your Kickstarter, because like you said, that whole month where people are giving you their money and they're getting really excited, you do kind of just want to be like, "Oh my God, I love you! Have everything in the world!" <laughs> but it, you will, you will be dead. You will die at the end of that. You will be there'll be nothing left of you. You'll be a corpse, drained of your vital fluids.
3: Um, well, so, kind of, also having uh, a round are a really interesting point in this because like people presume that you're going to have stretch goals and th- like at some point they stop kind of making monetary sense to some degree like the the when you start out I think a lot of times you get a big benefit from scale from kind of the first few multiples of how much you thought you were going to make and then at some point you stop getting as much of a benefit of that extra scale and uh, people are expecting like these big things and I, I'm actually really interested in how the idea of stretch goals even got started because there's nothing in
0: Kickstarter that says you have to yeah. do them or so there's nothing like that. that supports them either, right? Yeah. They're not supported by the technology, right? So you, it's very difficult to even, like, you, you're accountable for tracking them. Like, you have yeah. to make the spreadsheet and say, okay, this yeah. is what I promised these people. Well, I used to have to go back to our Kickstarter to remember all the extra stretch goals we added because, right. Gee.
3: Yeah.
1: Well, and again, like I said before, like, that's something that I think is either going to uh, it's gonna go away, or it'll become institutionalized. Kickstarter will say, "Okay, when you reach this amount, we'll post this for you," and it'll become part of the part of the experience. Because exactly. yeah, people just sort of expect it. It's a, it's an unstated thing that happens in Kickstarter.
2: Yeah, there's some, there's some things that you can do. I think depending on the form of the project that you're, that you're doing. So say a book, you can get an estimate from your printer and ask for what's the estimate for a eighty for an eighty page book to a hundred page book to a hundred fifty page book. And then kind of base that, base those demarcations as your stretch goals. So at a certain stretch goal, the book will be X size, and you can get an estimate for that and plan for that. Um, or if you're doing a card game, like um, this is a common thing on the board game side. Uh, if you're doing a card game, it's pretty common to to have uh, what are called expansions in, in your uh, in the base game, where it's mm-hmm. you know technically not really a full expansion, but it's something that's just a little bit extra that's packed into the main game as a stretch goal. And it doesn't really, it, it's an extra minimal cost to actually produce another sheet of cards and add it to a deck, for example, um, or to make an extra board, or to just upgrade things. They actually did, ran a poll on this, actually, what, what people prefer as far as stretch goals go, whether they prefer just more stuff or the same stuff they were expecting but slightly improved, either in terms of uh, quality or in detail, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was odd. Most people actually did prefer their own just quality. Some people assumed that quality would actually be, you know, the best it possibly could be anyway, so that's where they went for quantity instead, but it was it was an interesting divide um, in responses.
0: Yeah, I would say that there's, so so for our last best hope, we offered a companion book, like so like an expansion book with new missions and stuff, and then a short story collection, which are both wrapping up now, and we should get them out to backers pretty soon. And people were, I think, like, they were, they were very excited about having extra stuff. That was, like, they wanted the extra book, and I think if I had said, we're going to add these missions to the core book, they would not have been as excited. That was my impression. That was, the, that was sort of my anecdotal gut-level feeling. So it is this weird divide. Like, there's this temptation to say, well, if you're adding it to the main product, I don't understand why it wasn't in there to begin with, and so I don't really think of that as a real stretch goal. But then clearly, when you guys for Dungeon World said... The art's going to be color, and we're going to do all this extra. Like, clearly that got a response. So I'm still, I'm definitely still trying to struggle to figure out where, where people are coming from.
1: It's a weird thing, like stretch goals in general, because ostensibly from uh, the position of the person running the Kickstarter campaign, you put the stretch goals in place to get people to either up the bid that they've already put in, up the money they're already paying you, or to tell their friends to get them on board. Um, So there's some monetary gain there, so the the space between where I'm at now and the stretch goal I'm trying to hit, the money you're going to make needs to compensate you for the extra work that you're going to be doing. But I think it's sort of gotten twisted into this position where it's like, okay, well, you you unlock these goals once the project reaches these things, and they're already budgeted in and we've already thought about them, and you have to kind of assume your project is going to reach a certain point, which is kind of weird. Like, again, there's such an informal thing that I, I almost feel like they're not really... Um, they're sort of out of place in the experience. Like, if, if I could have just said, here's how the game is going to be, here's what you're going to get when you bid at these things, there are no stretch goals, I probably would have done that. But just because the expectation is there, um, you know, we had to kind of make up this stuff as we went along uh, for a lot of them.
2: Yeah, the, uh, when I, again, whenever I was first getting started, I, I feel like an old-timer whenever I say this. But... <laughs>
0: you're here, like, years before the rest Back of it. Back in the day! <laughs> <laughs>
2: Uh, but when I when I did first get started with Kickstarter, it was um, there wasn't a word for for that. There wasn't a word, or term, stretch goal, but there was clearly this need to maintain momentum that you had built up from an unexpectedly fast success. Um, and, and back you know back in the day, people didn't know how long they should set as a deadline. People didn't know what an adequate amount was to raise within a certain period of time. And so, more often than not, people had these really rapid success stories, which I think contributed to the, to the Kickstarter myth that was early on. Um, and in having those fast successes, they, they realized, "Oh, wait, I could I could be even more successful. I, I could, you know, I could get more out of this if I just promise more." And it was it was crazy to me just watching Kickstarters that happened over the over the next couple, following years. How quickly that got codified. Uh, that this is based on the percentage. And or you base it on the number of followers uh, or, or the number of uh, backers that you get right. um, that you, you can use those two metrics as as your stretch goal uh, marker um, and like one of the cool things I thought actually uh, uh, Evil Hat did for um, Race to Adventure card game was that they they basically said we're going to produce this game anyway we we are not using the this Kickstarter as necessarily uh, something to like fund the production um, right. though that's clearly helping. So with that rationale, they actually set their first stretch goal at one hundred percent. because basically the Kickstarter was being used to fund an extra expansion that would be added on added onto the base game that they were planning on making anyway. And then thereafter it
1: would
0: was... Uh oh. Oh man, a hurricane.
1: Solus fell into the hurricane again.
0: <laughs> I imagine it like this swirling vortex that he's like in the middle of on a Google Hangout. <laughs> 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 That's good. Uh, so let's,
3: let's,
0: let's go to Great. a new question. Do we have another Yeah, let's let's move on to a new question. Um sort of like get off Kickstarter for a minute and talk about conventions. Right. So, you know, indie game designers are legendary for going to conventions that are expensive. Uh and you know, whether that be Gen Con or PAX or any number of other places that indie game designers uh co- congregate. So is it worth it? Is it worth it to go to a convention and why? Um it depends on what you mean by worth it.
3: Like, as far as selling a product, um, possibly not. And it depends on how you sell your product and what your product is and stuff. Um, it just depends on the convention and how they support you, too. Yeah. I mean, I tend to view, at this point, conventions. Um, I still go to them mostly as just an attendee. I mean, even if my books are on sale there. Um, in which case, I don't feel like I need to justify the cost of the convention versus like the entire profit, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the book itself has to sell a profit wherever it's being sold, but my I'm still going as a fan. Um, now that Dungeon World's bigger and I may have to put in more time to it, that may mean that conventions become more work, and that may mean that I have to justify them. Um, so there's this weird balancing act, like if I'm successful enough that it's worth working it, then it has to be much more successful because it has to be worth working it. Um,
1: and thankfully, we're in a position where you're able to uh, play games and sell said games by playing them. And hopefully, while you're playing them, you're still having fun. Like, um, for Gen Con uh, this past year, I spent most of my time at Games on Demand running Dungeon World, which is really fun. I love running Dungeon World. Obviously, I like the game, or I would not have made it in the fashion that I did. Um, but it's also a promotional tool, right? You can You can show people who haven't played it before who might be interested what it's about. Um, which is sort of on the small scale. Obviously, you know, if you, if you scale up, you can't attend every game, but you hope to have fans that are running it for you, being around to offer advice and talk to fans about the game. Even if you're not, you know, at a booth every day, all day, actually physically selling copies, you're still marketing the game. You're still participating in the, the ecosystem of the game exists existing, um, which for me is a, a way more preferable approach than standing in the convention hall uh, hawking the game all day which, I mean, obviously I don't have the numbers to compare the effectiveness of the two, but in my mind, I think, and, and this might just be our bias from how we built the game, but in my mind, playing it with people and talking about it is more effective than being in a booth and shoving it in some random person's face who happened to slow down in front of your booth.
0: Yeah, we, so so just like as an example of that, this, this last Gen Con, uh, Magpie had a booth with the Indie Game Developer Network, so we have... A bunch of indie game developers who work together to sort of like you know advise each other and help out. And hello, Daniel. Hey. <laughs> and uh, we're talking about conventions, whether they're, whether they're worth it or not. Um, and so we, we had this booth at Gen Con that was you know expensive, but we sort of split it with with the whole network, right? The network actually purchased the space, and then we basically really devoted ourselves to games on demand. And I think for us, the two are related, like the reason you have a booth at Gen Con is to send people who are at Games on Demand to your booth. Like, we did not expect to get a lot of sales from, like, you know, being like, hey, here's our game, look at it. Like, why you know, why is somebody going to buy from in that situation? But we had a lot of people who played the game with us at Games on Demand and then went down to the booth and purchased it. And I think Adam nails it. Like, there's a whole ecosystem and culture and community for indie games that's really strong, much stronger than people might know, And, like, you can go and participate both as a player, just, like, show up and play games, and then as a GM. Like, we desperately needed GMs. I was helping to run games on demand, and there were many times where it was like, we are full up. If you showed up in that moment and said, I have a game, and it's about space mutants, I would say, you four people that we don't have a table for, do you want to play the space mutant game? And nine times out of ten, they're going to say yes, and you can go play your space mutant game. And that's a great way to get involved in in the community.
1: Yeah, due to, due to all of the work that, that people like Steve Segetti and, and John Stavropoulos and those guys have done laying that background work, I, I don't think we're far off from seeing pretty much every major convention having a games on demand and like, having that, that buzz generation engine there uh, to just say, you know what, you want to play a game? These games suit a two-hour slot. Have at her. Um, and then, like you said, having somewhere, and I think this is the other half of the puzzle from a, a selling-your-game perspective, having somewhere to direct those people. Uh, is really good. And, and I'd love to see it, it codified in the same way, to have games on demand for play, but also for there to be somewhere that people who, game designers who are interested in participating in the retail side of it, can chip in some money, they can work together to, to have a booth and have them be uh, a collaborative effort. Because um, right now it's all kind of from con to con, it's pretty different. Sometimes there's a local retailer that'll set that up. Sometimes there's a shared booth. It really sort of depends. Um,
0: so the press revolution is usually usually mm-hmm. most conventions, and that's been where, like, we've sold a lot of copies of the plays the Thing through that at conventions, like, that either we couldn't go to or we didn't want to buy a booth at. Um, but we're hoping with the Indie Game Developers Network to at least have a regular presence at Gen Con, yeah. and we'd welcome any Indie Game Developers who want to, like, talk about coming on board. So, it's a community, it's not just, like, a sharing program, and maybe there needs to be something a little bit more neutral, like Adam's talking about, but I think either way, like this is a really cool moment to be an indie game designer. There's like a really strong community built around conventions. And one thing that Sage didn't explicitly say, but that I I think is really important is, you know, conventions are where you meet people and people you might want to work with and people you might want to do stuff with. I met Daniel, Adam, and Sage all at conventions um, and have gamed with you guys and had a good time hanging out um, in that space because it actually gave us time to like talk as opposed to just sort of like running past each other on the internet. It uh, through mutual friends. So I think conventions are really crucial, but what I would advise indie game designers to do is to be very careful about your commitments. Like, a booth is a big commitment. And yeah, a booth is a huge deal. Yeah.
3: Well, and especially time-wise, Like even if you can put up the money for it and maybe make a profit even, uh, you just hand it over a lot. Unless you have people to help you, you hand it over time where you could be running games, which is a really solid way to sell your game a time when you're going to be maybe hawking stuff at people. Um, on the other hand, Evan and I have thought about doing some kind of booth thing, because then there will be a place to find us and talk to us about the game other than when we're actually in games. Right. Um, and there's an upside to that, too. I mean, people know that this is the place for the place of the thing, or Dungeon World, or whatever. And that gives you a place to find people. And plus, it's kind of fun seeing your game being sold, actually. Like, we were at IPR with the Dungeon World basic set a couple, or a year and a half back. Um, and that year, IPR was really small, so we couldn't actually stand at the booth and talk to people and sell it or anything. But I'd walk by the booth, like, three times a day, because I was obsessing about this, and just, like, look at people, like, reach out and think, like, oh, what's this game? And that's a... A great thing to see. It's hilarious, really, especially when somebody puts it back. Um, that was kind of my favorite moment. They like look at the book and then they're like eh, and put it back. And I'm like, oh, okay,
0: that, that's like I don't need to think about it coming over. <laughs> <laughs> that's great, Daniel. Any thoughts on conventions? Um, I'm curious about what your thoughts
2: are actually, since since you seem to be a big player in this indie plus convention. Like, what do you? How do you feel about Google Hangouts? Actually. Um, you know, taking up some, some time, because I see a lot of people playing role-playing games long distance on Google Hangouts now. Um, so
0: I think there's there's two things there. One is the Tabletop Forge app and the Roll20 app make it a little bit more manageable. I actually have a regular game of Dungeon World going uh, where my players have uh, fallen into the Goblin Kingdom and ended up becoming the rulers of the go- Goblin Kingdom, which is of course the, the old rule of give them what they want as hard as you can. And uh, and now they have to you know like defend the goblin kingdom from these external threats and you know etc cetera, et cetera. and it's worked great on Google Hangouts right so we have we have like I draw a little map I put little goblin tokens on the board and you know there's some stuff that's not as good in terms of reading people's faces and figuring out you know like when is it time to speak is hard to do on a Hangout um, but like there's there's a lot I mean I'm I'm playing with you know Jim Crocker Morgan Ellis. Uh, you know, Marissa and and Jeremy Friesen; these are all people I met through Games On Demand or through the indie community. Uh, and Travis Scott, and and these are great people who live all across the country. I think Morgan was in L.A., and you know, I live in Boston, right? So, like, we would. We, when are we going to get to game together again before Gen Con? And so, given those constraints, I think it's freaking amazing. And one of the big reasons I'm a supporter of the Indie Plus convention is because there's a lot of people who can't make it to a convention or where conventions are sort of. Like, maybe too big an expense, difficult to do with family, and it's pretty cool to give them a chance to be part of that environment and do a panel like this, right, and, and get to sort of talk to people without having to invest that kind of time and energy and money. So I think it's really cool. I think it's also difficult, though. Like, it's, there's times where it's hard to run games, and it's hard to get commitments from people to run games. It's much easier at a real convention to say, you four people, you are standing here without playing a game. I will run a game right now. And they're like, okay, and then they sit down and we have a four-hour game. That doesn't really happen on the internet. I think it has happened a couple of times,
3: um, where somebody is just like, I want to try this game, uh, and they post G Plus, and they manage to get a game together. But it, it is definitely much more rare than any convention.
0: Yeah, I meant more like in the convention, but totally right. I mean, like, like you know, totally. I think you see people who are like, I want to play right now, and because you have an audience of a thousand people, three people will say, Yeah, okay, I'm in. Um, but more like you, it's difficult to say you're attending the convention, right? That's one of the challenges, is to say yeah. because like everybody's attending the convention, kind of, right? If you have an internet connection, so yeah, I think everybody uh, who's on my G plus feed kind of is
3: attending the convention to some degree,
0: right? Exactly. So how do we get people to like? No, we're going to have to develop some new tools, and I'm really with Adam that like, you know, Kickstarter's going to develop new tools, Google's going to develop new tools, like. All of these tools are going to push along the the development of this community further, um, and give people like new places to hang out and and have spaces that are going to be conducive to more gaming. So, a um, couple of quick questions. Uh, we have a we have a sort of technical or like very dungeon worldy question, but I think it's <laughs> an interesting enough place to start a discussion. But I think it'll be it'll be good for everybody. So, um, it says reading other Apocalypse World engine games. I wish I Dungeon World. Had already- Hi, Jeremy. (laughs) (laughs) So, so like, why does Dungeon World not have a weird stat, and and what does it mean? And maybe for those people who are not super familiar with Apocalypse World, you could talk for just a moment about what the weird stat does in Apocalypse World first. Uh, so Apocalypse
3: World has a weird stat, which um, part of it? Okay, well, I guess I'll I'll be right back. Go on. (laughs) Yeah. Um, The weird stat is what you roll for kind of your connection to all things weird and otherworldly. In particular, the basic move with it is to uh, reach out to the Psychic Maelstrom and get impressions of things that may come to pass and information and stuff. Um, So part of the reason that that's very different from Dungeon World is that stats mean kind of different things. Um, If you look at the stats in Apocalypse World, they're cool and hard and stuff like that. They're they're very... um, kind of almost personality descriptors. They describe who you are in a really general way, whereas with Dungeon World, we wanted to use the D&D stat. So we've got, like, how strong are you? How dexterous are you? Um, so we're already thinking about things kind of differently there. Um, Adam, you want to chime in for a bit before I ramble for a while longer?
1: Well, I was just going to say that the, the sort of big difference in the stat blocks between Apocalypse World and Dungeon World is that the Apocalypse World stats talk about who the characters are more than anything. And the Dungeon World stats talk about what your character is capable of doing. Um, whether you are strong enough or dexterous enough to perform certain feats. Whereas in Apocalypse World, it's like, are you, are you cool? Are you tough? Like, What, what is your character uh, about? Um, that comes in Dungeon World more from your class than it comes from your stats. Um, the other thing that Weird does, that every, every character can use their Weird to access facts about the game world, the, the setting of the, of the system, the current ongoing uh, situation, that the characters themselves might not have direct access to. So while your character might not have seen uh, tum tum shoot your best friend, the psychic maelstrom probably remembers that happening. So you can roll plus weird, you can access the maelstrom at a risk, and you can learn these things uh, about the setting. Um, there's some of that in, in uh, Dungeon World by way of spout lore, by way of your intelligence stat, things that your character knows off-screen, but we don't have that kind of omnipresent uh, maelstrom effect going on in Dungeon World, so there's no need for that kind of stat. Um, so really, I think that the, the lack of a, a weird stat in our game is more just because the facts of the world are determined by exploration. It's about going into a place that's, that's weird and full of scary stuff and learning about it firsthand. Not tapping into the sort of collective weird unconscious and learning it from uh, from them. The
2: well, like second Yes,
3: exactly. Weird is in general also kind of your way of interacting with the supernatural, and in D and D and kind of in, and therefore in Dungeon World, you interact uh, with the supernatural through either being smart enough to like figure it out, you're a wizard, or like you have divine faith and you're a cleric, and those kind of tie to intelligence and wisdom. So you'll yeah. see a lot of the things that. Um, might otherwise be weird, summed up in moves that you make with those two stats, because that's what kind of setting we want to have. Um, like the arcane otherworldly stuff you interact with in these ways in Dungeon World. Yeah, in, um, in, in, that, Apocalypse, in Apocalypse World, the the weird uh, isn't
1: always uh, right there in front of you. But in Dungeon World, there's magic and monsters everywhere. That shit's falling from the sky. So you can't you oh, don't, literally. You, you even move to access it. It's right there.
3: <laughs> um, there's also the, so I, I saw a preview of this question on my Google Plus stream, and I've been thinking about it already. Um, I could totally see having class specific stats. I could see having a class that has weird. Um, I, I was just thinking about why would you need weird? And I could see, I can see it almost as a luck style stat, um, kind of like a few things in the regiment or Dunhill Classics. Um, there, there are other things that we could have stats for, certainly. But uh, I don't think the weird stead is needed as it exists in apocalypse world.
0: And maybe, maybe Daniel, you have some thoughts about this. But this is kind of the concept challenge, right? It's to fit the function to the form, right? Is the is the sort of I think one of the core precepts of sort of indie design. And
3: yeah. so
0: you know, some of our other people were sort of asking, how do you balance that trade off, like between thinking about art and thinking about you know, like, how the game looks and how thinking about how the game works. And I think this question sort of bridges that, right? To think about, like, you know, why does why does Dungeon World not have a weird stat is the same question as why does Doe uh, use tokens instead of dice? Right? Oh, why does Doe not have stats? Why does Doe not have stats, <laughs> Doe not have stats? right? The same <laughs> thing. Exactly. How dare you, heritage. <laughs> we have standards here, sir. We <laughs>
1: have standards. I need to know how strong my character is or I will not play your game. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah I mean it, it's, it, it was one of those things
2: I mean that, that, that kind of came out of the whole um, not having a character creation setting or, or, or decision that I made a while back uh, I mean in a very 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 early iteration of the game I, I did have stats and in, under the assumption that I had to have stats uh, at a time I was like reading a bunch of um, indie games and playing a bunch of indie games and I was like okay so if I have stats they can just mean something different without ever questioning the assumption of having stats to begin with uh, so, like, so like ennui right <laughs> Yeah, and, and so at the time I was, I was like okay what cool thing can my stats mean and I was exploring that for a long time and kind of running in circles uh, it came up with some interesting ideas but none of them were as interesting as just not having stats at all and, and focusing instead on some, some central things in the mechanics that I wanted to focus on so one of them was alright I want my heroes to get into trouble uh, but I want them to get in trouble because they're helping people and those two things were really the central th- themes that I was focusing on and so in that sense yes there are stats because then I ask you in, the, in the, just in the beginning tell me how you get into trouble usually and tell me how you help people usually and and then you come up uh, you can kind of describe that to me up front but essentially that's the that's the most codified you get uh, as as far as character creation goes and and, and really all that is is just a way of introducing you to what you'll be doing in the rest of the game, anyway, uh, because you'll kind of be constantly be asked that question. All right, how do you help people? What you, what are you doing to help right now? Go. All right, how does everyone else? How does that get in trouble? Go. Bingo, and that's that's the whole game. And so, really, it, it, that was the, that was my decision process. Eventually, it was like it took me a long time to realize. All right, I don't need to base my design decisions on the assumptions uh, that have been kind of made or or, or or set in stone. You know, seemingly. Uh, I can just focus on what it is I want to do in the game and then just, you know, make decisions based on that uh, with no other assumptions. And I I, do yeah. I, need, I need someone to
3: cut me off. So I to... think the, the question of assumptions, um, I mean, we this is all called Indie Plus and everything, and the Indie term gets so overloaded. Like, people will think they know things about our games based on the word Indie being applied to us. Um, and the only, like, real... Defined definition is independent, like you control your own output and everything. But I think if you stretch a bit past that and try to make it be more of a design stance, that stance is questioning assumptions. Um, and it's really weird. Uh, a lot of I find a lot of games that I like that are from, if you want to call them more mainstream uh, developers or whatever. Um, nice, Adam. Uh, <laughs> like the the thing that. If anything will bother, I mean, they have great ideas, and I love a lot of stuff about them, but then there'll be these huge swaths of stuff that just seem to be assumed, like, oh, of course we need this stuff. Um, And that's kind of my pet peeve at this point. Like, I'll find these games that I love um, and then get to, like, hundreds of pages of the book that are there because they assumed they needed certain things that I'm not sure were needed. Um, And it's a real challenge reading them. Like, I had a trouble with the... uh, Star Wars RPG beta because like I was reading it through and there's all this great stuff and I was kind of nodding my head and then I got to hundreds of pages of descriptions of individual mechanical abilities and I was like wow, I did not know I needed to know how well my guy can like fire his blaster pistol at people who are undercover when he has extra uh, I forget what they call the points you can spend to spend like right.
2: well, uh, how much of that is also just players having those assumptions and, and thus as a business decision, you, you kind of yeah. want to play to your audience. and
3: When Adam and I did a, a Ask Us Anything on Reddit, um, we had a guy ask us, like, so what's your skill system? Um, and it was just like, he, from where he was coming from, like a skill system was a thing that you had, of course. I'm like, we don't have one. And he's like, well then, how do you ca- handle when somebody climbs a tree? And we had this entire discussion of like, well, okay, like climb a tree, <laughs> you know, What's going on? Like, the long guy climbing a tree because he's going right. to climb a tree. Like, Stop it's done. Stop a tree we're antagonizing every... the tree. We're antagonizing.
1: Is... <laughs> I'm going to go aggro on this tree.
0: Right. <laughs> you have to convince
3: the tree with your emotions. That's
0: right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. You well, know, because
3: all indie designers, we only care about the emotions of our characters, right? In in Doe's case, it, it would be why are you trying to help the
1: tree? Right. <laughs> he just wants to be climbed.
0: Right. Well, I think you, actually, Sage, you, there's a lot there, and I hope, I mean, that's, like, the entire indie design manifesto in, like, three sentences, but, like, the the uh, the assumption-breaking thing is huge, right? Like, the frame of it, uh, and your own frame, and, and being okay with being challenged, right? Like, so, like, this is sort of a weird breaking the frame, but, like, when the Marvel game came out, I was like, why would I want to play Captain America? Like, I already, it's stupid. I, why would I want to play that? And then I played Captain America, and I was like, this game is awesome. That's that's that's
1: exactly the same revelation I had with that game. I read it, and I was like, why would I want to play these characters? Like, I know what Wolverine is like. And then when we played it, I was like, being Wolverine is so awesome.
3: <laughs> <laughs> when you think about, like, they could have made a different decision and made it all about, like, you're playing your new character in the Marvel Universe. And imagine playing, like, the horrible guy that you're going to come up with in 30 minutes before playing right. is your hero now. And he's hanging out with Captain America, and you've got, like... Captain Red Cape, and you're yeah, like,
1: well, like the, the thing. The thing about that too is that the game supports it mechanically, right? It's like you, you're not just playing Spider Man. You're playing Spider Man, and here's all your powers. But here's Spider Man shtick. Here's like how you can be rewarded for playing Spider Man like he's Spider Man. You get XP for doing that, which yeah, is yeah. a really great game design uh, thing to do, right? Because the reward system is tied inherently to the kind of play they're trying to create. So a, a player who's comfortable being, like, funny and can think of, like, clever things to say off the cuff, they're going to play Spider-Man sort of more successfully than, both mechanically and narratively, than someone who's a little shy and would have a harder time with it. So it, it drives people to the kind of play the game is trying to create, which is a big win uh, as far as I'm concerned.
3: And
2: I think I mentioned, like, how hard it is to work with an established property, especially when it has such prominent characters. Mm-hmm. And the fact that Marvel RPG faced that head-on and actually made it a central decision of, of, of how they developed the game, like they're not going to shy away from that. You are playing these characters, and we're going to make that fun. Mm-hmm.
3: Well, and it's yeah. great because so many times when you play a superhero game, you end up just like describing your guy as like, well, "I'm pretty much Cyclops." Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm be
1: anyway.
3: no, no one ever wants to be a Cyclops. Hey, no
1: one has That's ever ever happened before. No one's ever said, "Oh, I just want to be Cyclops." <laughs> The worst. <laughs> Let me look at all of the X Men.
0: Yeah,
3: just- I'm gonna <laughs>
1: pick Cyclops. <laughs> I, would be, I would rather be Dazzler than Cyclops. Like well, any- she has a band. That's right, see? a band. But I mean, to to that point, like you kind of wonder if like how many iterations of Star Wars RPG have there been, and they're always about like you know while while Luke and Leia and Han are running around saving the galaxy, off in this other corner where no one gives a shit. Here's our players fighting some stormtroopers. Yeah. You wonder, like, what would what would a Star Wars game be like if it was like, all right, well, you're you're Luke, you're Han, you're Leia, you're Chewie, go for yeah. it. Yeah,
3: I mean, yeah, I mean it's like they you gave know. you the uh, Star Wars playset, but instead of giving you action figures for Luke and Han and Leia, they just gave you stormtroopers and the guys in the background. Like yeah. that. That's the
1: well, and you know that, that's the thing is you can you can have a lot of fun with that. You can be the Rosencrantz and Gildenstern of the of the Star Wars universe. And that can That's be fun. Thing. But, it, I mean, and again, like like Daniel said, it's, uh, it, there's, there's ex- expectation of the audience, and there's business decisions to be made, right? Like, people don't necessarily expect a Star Wars game where you play the protagonist, they expect to be able to tell their own stories. And again, big ups to Marvel for being able to just like, take that for Murderous Productions to take it head on and be like, you know what? It's fine. We're going to make it really fun to be your version of Frank Castle.
2: Honestly, it's kind of an interesting thing mentioning Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. And Mark uh, designed a game where you're taking the, you know, want to talk about established properties, take Shakespearean plays, and you you play within those constraints, with those common frameworks, and you just essentially make a a Shakespeare fanfic. It would be interesting to see that same kind of decision made with the Star Wars property. Yeah.
1: Well, Shakespeare. Shakespeare's a funny example for that, too, because whenever you see, like, an original production of Shakespeare, it's just, Julius Caesar, but it's, like, uh, Soviet Russia. Yeah, we're really creative. <laughs> Nothing else is different.
0: Right, yeah, yeah. Well, and, we, and what's funny about playing the game, I mean, we'll go to cons and people will be like, why would I want to play this Shakespearean game? Because, you know, people on the internet are like, yeah, Shakespeare, like, they find it. But people at cons are like, okay, well, we'll try this. And then within, like, 30 seconds, they've, like, wrecked the plot, right? Like, wrecked it. They're like, all right, so Macbeth's in love with Macduff and and Banquo's actually the one that killed everybody, and go. And it's, like, good. And, like, within 30 seconds, you're off in such a different universe. It's just a completely different play. And I think you're right that something like Star Wars could be really cool with that. And Marvel does that all the time, right? Like, you'll start off, and, yeah, you're playing Captain America, but then immediately... There's some big major change in the world, and now Captain America has to like, you know, be really different or undergo some transformation. It starts from the same point, but it's really centered around you and your role playing, um, you know, to, to meet the new challenge. And I think Marvel does that the whole way through. Like the Doom Pool, the you know the distinctions, the Cortex system, like the whole thing is all about like breaking assumptions and making people think differently in a way that makes them really comfortable, right? Like it doesn't also induce like a lot of hate mail. Because it doesn't have a skill system, right? Like, because it kind of does have a skill system, kind of. <laughs> so, so it's like a great way of sort of managing that discomfort with with new things. And I think one of our big challenges as indie designers is how do we get new ideas out there that sort of also are not so new as to be irrelevant to people, right? That they that they're able to sort of grasp onto and make some. Do some of the work and think about some of those assumptions without just being like, "Ah, oh, this game makes me crazy," and throwing yeah. it across the room. I, I really envy that Dungeon World
2: has the the uh, like the most identifiable, familiar framework to play around with because, like, you know, everyone knows the basic tropes of your thing, and if you're doing anything that's different, there's always going to be a barrier to entry for for a lot of people because, you
1: know. Well, it's it's funny. We've been we sort of. Offhandedly criticized for it too, where people will be like, "Oh, you're making a game, and it's like about dungeons fighting monsters. How how difficult of you? Like what a what a scary choice you've made." I'm <laughs> channeling his inner hipster here. And also, not not every game can be like hairy or like Grey Ranks. Like I'm sorry, like that's just not you know. And for for us, the design goal was not just to to give indie gamers a, a game for playing D and D, but it's to give people who are only experienced with D&D, an opportunity to try something a little bit different. And I think that's one big surprise that's been for us is how popular uh, Dungeon World is among people who have only got experience with D&D and with Pathfinder and with, with games like that, where they'll try Dungeon World because, like Daniel said, it's, it's comfortable territory. Like, they know what a fighter is. They know what a wizard is. They know what elves look like. And it's this kind of inroad into uh, you know, maybe Apocalypse World or, or other games like that.
3: Yeah. Well, and practically, the reason that Dungeon World is the way it is is because we're making the game that we want to play, and it's cool finding out that other people want to play that. Like, when I, uh, the early stages of Dungeon World, I was still <laughs> running a 4th edition game, and a lot of things changed in Dungeon World based on whatever would annoy me with the game that night, um, playing an entirely different game, which isn't to say there's anything wrong with 4th edition. I was having a great time. But anytime it was, like, not my perfect vision of exactly what I wanted, I just kinda of tinker with it that way, which isn't to say that it's a better game, it's just like just I say it's a better game. game. No, I, don't, I I don't yeah, I'm not gonna say that. There's <laughs> no this. I mean I'm not gonna let people yeah, no, no, no. Daniel, I, Daniel. I really
1: I really like every version of Dungeons and Dragons I've ever played, including Dungeons.
2: You know, it kind of brings up an interesting point, though. Um, I think someone mentioned um, on Twitter some some time back uh, how how many people play Pathfinder or Dungeon World, but in their kind of in kind of their, their head, they're still or even just telling the people that just telling people that they're playing D anD D still. Yeah. That, like, it was an interesting idea that D anD D is as a concept is sort of independent of whatever game system you're playing with, especially since so many of the game systems, even for the official D anD D have been
1: so different from each other a lot of times. It's, yeah, Dun- Dungeons and Dragons is the like band-aid or the Kleenex or the jello of of RPGs. Right. You know, yeah. like if I if I say to someone, "Oh, I'm playing uh, getting together with some of my friends and we're playing Burning Wheel." That immediately follows, "What the hell is that?" But if I say, "Oh yeah, we're just going to play some D&D." It's like, "Okay, I get. It. Like you're going to go and roll dice and pretend to be right. a
0: and drink like a lot of mountain dew and and like stay up way past when your parents said it was okay." It's, yeah. you, know, it's,
2: it, you know what? I like can compare it to... It's
0: like play, It's like saying you're playing cards. Like,
2: right. Yeah. Playing you board games. Playing, we're playing board games. Yeah. You could be playing a lot of different games and still
0: say, oh we're just playing cards or playing board games.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Okay, well, we should probably get to wrapping up, so I wanted to do kind of like a lightning round here at the end, and I'd mm-hmm. like you to talk about um, just briefly the last awesome game you played, what you're working on next... And something people should be thinking about. So just sort of like, like something, something they should have their eye on. Like what's, what's out there in the world that people don't know about that they should? Could be a game that John Harper pitched to you in, in the car that's never going to come into the real world. But just sort of real briefly, like what did you play recently that rocked? You know, what, what are you working on? And, uh, and what, what is out there in the, in, the, in the ether that people should know about. You may have to repeat those questions. I'm not going to remember. Oh, why don't we one. just do the first one all across the board? So okay. first of all, what's the last game you played that rocked? We'll start with
1: Adam. Uh, I have been playing, anybody who follows me on Google+, Plus will know how much I'm in love with this game. I've been playing Dungeon Crawl Classics uh, every Friday since, like, beginning of June, and it is so awesome. Uh, I'm, I'm playing it with a group of 14 people, uh, usually, like, eight or nine at a time, uh, and it's done nothing but support us and, and create amazing, just like Gonzo over the top, old school 70's fantasy stuff. It's amazing. It's a fantastic game. Totally came out of nowhere for me. I didn't even know it existed until it was out. But uh, I picked up a copy and I've been playing with my friends and it's choice.
0: Very good. Daniel, what have you been playing that
2: rocks? Uh, I'm, I'm thinking, I've played a lot of really good, fun games, but I think for the uh, for people who are watching the stream who are more interested in kind of a role playing experience, uh, a game that rocks uh, from the board game side is a game called The Resistance. Uh, it is a small scale version of what you may be more familiar with as uh, Mafia or Werewolf. Uh, so hidden roles, people who are uh, people who you have a, you have a relatively small group. You can play with as small as five players. Some people are spies and uh, and they're the bad guys. Some people are the resistance, or the good guys. Uh, and there's really, really interesting ways and elegant ways that uh, information is revealed to some people, and misinformation is spread around to the rest of the group. Uh, it's it's a fun, paranoid, tight, and really intense experience that plays out in about an, in less than an hour. Uh, and, and if you want to get that kind of, if you want to get that vibe with a small group, and you don't have enough people to play werewolf, like a big old, you know, 20, 20 person group of werewolf. The resistance is amazing. Awesome.
3: Cool. Sage. Okay, uh, I'm going to stick with RPGs. I could mention some of the board games uh, and some of the stuff we've been playing at work, but um, I'll stick with RPGs and I'll go with Saga of the Icelanders, um, which runs the risk of making me sound like I only like Apocalypse World-based games, but it was so great. Um, Saga of the Icelanders is... Apocalypse World-based games that you're involved in... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was only involved in it relatively recently. Yes, I'm I'm doing something for their Kickstarter, or their IndieGoGo campaign as well. So Which is back. ongoing, which you can look up. It's ongoing, yes. You guys should all go look at it right now. Um, but it's based on uh, the collection of poems and Rook narratives, uh, called of the Icelanders, but it's also called of the Icelanders, which is going to cause no ends of confusion and make it hard to Google. But um, it's a role-playing game of those, uh, based on Apocalypse World, but changing a lot of the assumptions, it questions a lot of things, like uh, you don't have HP. Um, there's just a move for when you suffer harm uh, where you might die. Um, and my favorite moment playing the game was actually, I played this character through two sessions. Um, he was a farmer, he was kind of the... He was a good guy. That, that was definitely his thing. He was like a good guy, fighting for the community. And then there was the rich kind of merchant farmer who was completely keeping him down. Um, my character finally dies by going out in the snow to find food for our guests. Because um, we have to honor hospitality. And then I I make a new character and start playing my archenemy, the like, merchant farmer who was keeping my guy down, which was just the best thing ever. <laughs> so I started getting to play my own worst enemy, and uh, it completely sold me on the game. Um, and so, yes, I'm making a playbook for it, uh, which is going to be kind of a monster. Um, it's going to be a little bit like uh, playing Grendel, but the degree of monsterness is going to be a little up in the air. It's not necessarily going to be like claws and wings and stuff. Um, you may be a more human monster so they can fit in with kind of a lower monstrousness. Uh, but I really love the game, and it's totally worth the backing. Um, yeah, it was the last thing I played that rocked.
0: Cool, good. Well, I'm going to break from tradition and say, I'm going to actually say a board game. So, Yes, um, thank you. This is awesome, right. So so I'm a huge fan of Twilight Imperium, uh, which takes like 14 hours to play. It oh takes forever to play. Like, you, you have to dedicate like an entire, last time I played Twilight Imperium, we took the 4th of July to play. And it was like 9 AM <laughs> to like 8 PM. This is enormous, right? And we didn't even finish. We were just like called it at round eight. So uh, there's this game, and I'm sure I'm not being original here, but this game, Eclipse, which I got to try out this this like last week or two, which is like Twilight Imperium boiled down to like this awesome like three to four hour package. It's like literally 90 percent of what I liked in like three to four hours, which is which is a long time, but like a typical RPG session, and it was it was pretty amazing. So I would say the last great game I played was Eclipse. Not to mention all the other awesome Apocalypse World, Dungeon World things I'm doing, but that was a really cool experience that you don't get to have very often. So. Cool. All right, so what are you working on, Adam?
1: <laughs> yeah, I wonder. Here's, there's this game that I've been working on called Dungeon World. Wait, um, <laughs> what? I've heard of it. Um, what like Just all day, every. Actually, actually, uh, I'm. And this is something uh, Sage mentioned kind of it before. You're seeing lots of game designers cross-pollinating and like doing extra bonus stuff for uh, each other's kickstarters. You um, heard it here first, but depending on on how things go, I'm working on something with um, the guys that are doing that uh, magicians uh, RPG. If you haven't heard of it, it's awesome. I'm doing layout to teach you how to learn how to learn Korean, but it's also a super badass RPG about being a magician. Um, so I've uh, I put together some stuff. Uh, some kind of Dungeon World themed stuff uh, for those guys as maybe a future stretch goal. So I'm working on that uh, right now, on top of the massive pile of Dungeon World responsibilities that I have. Uh, yeah. Daniel. Uh,
2: so my my like everywhere my bio line is always art director by day, game designer by night. Uh, so on the art director side, what I'm working on right now is doing layout for Marvel supplements. Uh, and and various uh, small uh, smaller uh, role playing game things, although they end up usually usually being pretty big. So I'm also doing layout on the Magician's role playing game that Adam just mentioned. Uh, once that once the Kickstarter is going, go back it so I can get paid. <laughs> um, and on the game design side, uh, I am working on a card game that I've been working on for mo- uh, better part of the year. Uh, and uh, and it's, one, it's, it's basically this year's long-term project. Um, right. It's a uh, battle of ball. your rival party planners who are ruining each other's parties and stealing each other's guests. Wow. Uh, and uh, it's, it's been pretty fun. The playtesting uh, play has been going really well. The feedback's been great. Got a publishing offer, which I can't say more about. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm excited about it, and, and, and I'm definitely excited about breaking into the uh, uh, more traditional board game space.
0: So is it uh, Kickstarter later this year, early next year, or
2: I am itching to do it January, um, and and you know that 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 you know FOMO fear of missing out is really hard, and when when you especially this year when you start seeing some of the big big Kickstarters
0: like Dungeon World, <laughs> right, right, good Sage, what you working on? Uh,
3: Dungeon World, obviously. I'm kind of cracking the whip. Um... So let's see, just today I checked in on all of our uh, various physical reward things, and they are all underway in various definitions underway. Some of them are sitting on my doorstep. Um, trying to get those last art things finished out, and it looks like uh, there are a few more edits to make. But our plan is uh, for, we'll, we'll talk about it more in a Kickstarter update, but this week we should be getting our index by the end of the week. Uh, next week we should have the art done. We drop the art in and then send it to the printer, um, which, if we're a little bit lucky with turnaround, uh, we will have things to people by Christmas within North America. Uh, that's what we're hoping for.
0: Excellent. Uh,
3: Obviously, internationally, it may take you a little bit longer, because international shipping takes a while. Uh, So we'll be keeping people up to date on that. Um, I cannot wait to be done with this. I really like designing more than publishing. Uh, and then obviously, I'm doing the, the uh, stretch goal for Sagas the Icelanders. Um, and then I met up with some friends this past weekend and started talking about a game design just randomly that uh, I may have to end up doing, which I'm kind of dreading. Uh, I, I, I don't know if you guys feel the same way, but I feel like once you've published, like getting another idea that you think I'm going to have to publish is kind of like, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> what is, um, can I, if I can, may I ask, what's the status of
2: Powers for Good?
3: I want to go back to that, but I'm not sure I have the insight to do anything better than I've already done. Um, It's not getting enough play, which uh, for me to have enough feedback to really develop it more, which uh, like I was talking about earlier, I feel like that's kind of feedback that the pitch isn't there yet. Um, And plus, I think Marvel RPG may have outdone me in a really good way. I'm not like, oh, those guys, like I'm so happy that they may have made the game that I wanted to make. Uh, anytime somebody makes the game that I want to make, it's like, uh, weight off my shoulders, because that's one less thing I have to design. Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah. Like, it's so good that you're like, oh, done. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Cool. Uh, so here at Magpie Games, we're still cranking out the companion book and the uh, um, short story book. I think I'm waiting on like the last short story revision from one or two authors, so that looks like it's actually going to get done first, and we'll get out to backers. Uh, in the next week or two, in sort of like e ePub files, those are pretty simple, um, and then the PDF will follow, and then the companion book will follow. So we'll have that all wrapped up, I think, before the end of the year for sure. It'll the, the print the print books will head out to people. Uh, in the longer term, I think we're gonna I'm gonna get back to Eternity this at the end of the year here and hopefully release an open beta of the rules. And Eternity is the game where you get to play. Gods, and there is no GM, so you are a god and get to do what you like, along with your pantheon of uh, of other characters. So it's a it's a GMless game where you switch off roles. Uh, Daniel might play a god, and the rest of us play his pantheon of heroes and monsters and things. Um, so it's a very cool game for sort of like constantly switching off roles and building a really immense and eternal world, uh, which makes it, of course, like a big game, like a really big game that will go on for many, many, many sessions. So I'm excited to to have people start trying it out, and then probably launch a Kickstarter or you know er, earlier next year not January but earlier next year once we've gotten some good play testing reports back from the, back from the campaign
3: I can't believe you guys are already thinking about like next kickstarters and stuff like I am looking forward to not having a Kickstarter at well, all you, to the you have to
0: understand like it's you know, for those of us that are uh, sort of like you know I mean, we, we were very uh, we have this phrase here at, at, at my school about moving beyond your competence right mm-hmm. like you know you always want to be pushing your own competence and thinking about what you need to learn to do the next thing and uh we have very gradually pushed our competence but it sounds to me like you guys have like really had to learn new things to produce on this scale so yeah in, in my case we call it uh, if you're not failing you're not
3: reaching far enough right. um and we haven't failed yet so uh <laughs> we're we're hopefully just at the right level because I don't want to fail where money's involved and we're not going to like people have seen the book and stuff there's, there's yeah you know, I shouldn't have used the word failure because I know somebody's going to jump on that and be like, "Oh no, no!" no uh,
1: failure, failure is totally a uh, uh, indie games buzzword. Failure is good,
3: remember? Fail forward,
1: great. <laughs> right? well, we, yeah, we don't really want to succeed so much as fail in an interesting way. So just <laughs> right. money, so that we can fail all over it and no. we'll see what happens. Yeah, fuck
2: that! I want to succeed. <laughs> yeah, the the the. In my case, um, it's been a, it's been over a year since my last Kickstarter. Right. Um and, and oh, over a year and a like half. Alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. I mean, well, okay. So, so there was like less than six months between my last two Kickstarter's, and the last one was uh, for Writers Dice, completely different project, you know, like totally unrelated to necessarily uh, like a role-playing game publishing thing. It was an object, it was a toy, essentially, uh, which was a totally new experience for me, and that, that, that taught me a lot of things about how expensive dice are, <laughs> um, oh, and, and you know, it worked out. But right. Right. it was it was a cool experience but at the same time you know, I also learned like all right I got I got to cool it for a little while I got to build up some capital like and and you know just just you know be public be a public developer again for for a while before I launch my next thing because uh because having that long lead time leading into a Kickstarter was what's, was what made my last Kickstarter so successful uh so that's that's why I've been holding off for a while but that's also why I'm I'm so itching to start it again uh and and to so actually get in there but you know a year, you know, a year and a half passes and you forget how much of a full-time job a campaign is when it's going on. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Right. Yeah. And and for us, you know, we think about, um, like, the year. Like, so when when in the year can you really be effective? Right? And And there are certain times of the year that are not as effective. Like, I would say November 25th to January 1st is not an effective time. The launch a Kickstarter, like not a good time. So that means that within the year, you only have a limited number of, sp- of spaces that you can realistically run, and you start to think about, you know, when are your when can you go to a convention that might be a good time to promote at it for, and so like there's a lot of pieces that I think are falling into place for us to think about like around PAX East maybe, but some of that depends on like do the playtest reports come back good? You know, I've run this game a ton, but what happens when other people run it, and you know, do they do they have the same experience? Are there huge holes? A lot of it will depend on kind of how the first couple steps here go for us. Now, Marissa is actually working on her sort of like first independent game aside from me, like her own design project. Um, Yay, it's, more women developers! Yes, I know, right? She's so she's making a game um, that's like Spyro meets uh, Lord of the Rings meets Apocalypse World. So it's a it's a game about very brave. Everything needs apocalypse world these days. I know everybody's doing it, so uh, th- that's where she is right now. I don't know if that that part will stick, but she's uh, she's writing this really cool game about like baby dragons who like have access to like all these different kinds of magic. But as they grow older, they lose access to certain parts. And as you get like when you're a fully grown dragon, you're like only good at one thing. So when you're like a baby, like you have all this potential. And then you sort of lose that potential to achieve greatness. And what you I'm watching,
1: I'm watching Daniel's picture down at the bottom. You're blowing his mind. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, and oh, and My Little Pony. It's, it's also like My Little Pony. It's oh like my god! Marvel meets My Little Pony. That's that's yeah. It.
2: If you can tap into the Brony
0: community, oh my god! I know. Well, we're I'm a huge Brony, right? And if you see me at a con, I almost always wear my Brony shirt. I wonder how much that license would cost for My Little Pony. Yeah. No. Can you imagine a My Little Pony Apocalypse World game? That's what I think that's what Marissa's making. Like really, I'm really excited about it. Like you know, like roll roll to defeat your enemies, like roll to make friends. Like <laughs> Well, you know friendship is magic. Well that's the thing. Friendship is magic. Like it's not like magic. <laughs> it is magic. <laughs> so so that's what we're working on here at Magpie HQ. Oh and and, of course, our requisite, I'm working on the Apocalypse World hack as well, which I think I'm going to post to the Apocalypse World forum soon, so we'll leave that. Yeah, guys. It's, and we're, we're busy.
3: Know, like, it's so tough, because I keep on, like, Apocalypse World informs, I, I have a tough time not letting it inform my design, because it taught me so many things, but at the same time, like, even I kind of roll my eyes when another person is like, another Apocalypse World hack, and I'm like... Whoa. Yeah, right. Uh, well, I'm, th- like I would, my next uh, all the ideas that I have, like I kind of view them through the lens of Apocalypse World. Like I can't not at this point, kind of.
0: Well, it's such a powerful engine. I think that's how we need to see it, right? Is that is that it's an engine? It's like it's like there's a and and we tap. I think this for our last best hope. There's a Fiasco engine, kind of. It's not as explicit, but this idea that you're going to have spotlight scenes and people are going to get kind of get to take their turns with the narrative and stuff. Like other games did that. The Fiasco, like. Nailed it, and then you look at a game like Doggy Dog, which is an awesome product many people don't know about, and you're like, "Oh, well, this is this would not maybe have been possible without a fiasco. Or at least I would envision it very differently without fiasco, but it's not a fiasco, right? Like it's it's so totally different." But like we said earlier, like being indie, uh, for lack of a better word, is kind of about
3: questioning assumptions. Oh, um, now you're
0: blowing my mind! Like i oh,
3: that uh, Apocalypse World may become an assumption. I don't oh, think it has. No,
0: no, like I think it friends. could. It's like in The Matrix, when he gets out of The Matrix and he realizes he's still a slave to the machines. Oh
3: No, no, it's Inception, and we've got to go deeper. We've got to make an, <laughs> an apocalyptic <laughs> World for Apocalypse World. I'm coining the phrase now, Vinception. Vinception,
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> why, why, can't, why can't it be like the good old days when all we ever did was make Jedi hacks for dogs in the vineyard?
0: <laughs> I mean, oh, man. Good. Okay, so last lightning rounds. What what is out there that people don't know about that they should, Adam? They don't know about uh, Jesus. Um, or you know, you, I mean, even like if lots of people do, that's cool too. But what so, should they know about that they don't?
1: I can I can sp- I can spin a little emergent gameplay action here. So uh, I just finished playing uh, XCOM, which I'm sure many people are familiar with. The game in and of itself has next to no narrative. Uh, it's just aliens. You fight them. That's it. But you can change the appearance and names of the members of your team. And in my case, and in the case of many of the people I know, I, I made them people I know. So I had a I had a Sage Latura on my team, and I had a Jason Morningstar. And my
3: yeah, God, you God, God, you're still lying on my team. <laughs> yeah, I, I just want to point this out for everybody following along. I died in Adam's <laughs> game. Adam is my top sniper in my game. <laughs> so so this this game, which which is inherently just sort
1: of a tactical minis game, more or less, it's a computer game to move your guys around and shoot aliens, by assigning a uh, personality and value to your characters just through their names alone, through just a single tag on the character, makes the game into this completely different thing where you actually care about your little dudes, because, like, when, when Jason Morningstar died, man, he was my best guy, and I felt so bad, and I posted on Facebook, I was like, I, I, a mission that I had failed, and all the names of the people that had died, I tagged them on Facebook, and I said, I'm so sorry, you're all dead.
0: <laughs> I failed you, I'm so yeah, sorry. That's so bad. And they, no. were, they, they were good, I liked those
1: guys.
2: I found out about this way way. Oregon Trail. Trail.
1: Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, like Oregon Trail, totally. Yeah, and so it's like, not really an intended feature of the game, but something that builds a story on top of it, just because you have this emotional attachment to your friends' name.
3: Right. I think it might be more intended than you think, Adam. Because I so I got this idea from Adam. I was telling some of my friends who happen to be older about it, and they're like, "Well, of course that's how you play XCOM. That's how you've always played XCOM." Right. Like, I, yep. I'm wondering, yeah. Adam right. and I are young enough that we're like, "Oh, this is blowing our minds."
0: But I think it may be like, so XCOM was one of the first like games I bought as a as a kid that was yeah. mine, and of course at that time I named that was just how you played XCOM. Yeah, Every exactly. <laughs> i got to wonder if they couldn't have taken it a step further and, like, uh, why doesn't the game Facebook integrate to, like, yeah. automatically pull in? I thing. thought it – here's the irony. I saw Adam's post. I thought it did. Yeah, look,
1: <laughs> I, I feel like it would have been really cool if, like, you know, if you got a prom- – if you were on my team and you got a promotion, if you got a little message on Facebook, it was like, congratulations, you're, you're Corporal LaTora now or whatever. <laughs>
0: And then when you die, and then you died. <laughs> Sorry, and you, were you were shot, shot into man. my life, and if she and... died in my XCOM game. That one was tough. That's tough. <laughs> tough man. Tough to go. Okay, we got to keep moving because we're almost out of time. Daniel, what do people need to know about
2: uh, Euro board games? Like, I, I feel, I feel like the, I, I know a lot of people know about Euro board games. Clearly, but I don't see a lot of cross pollination, or at least when I was getting started I didn't see a lot of cross-pollination between, between the two and I think Euro board games have, have explored so many elements of probability and chance and uh, role selection and, and just how people can interact with each other that I think have really interesting narrative properties that people can really exploit for, for role-playing games uh, and narrative games in general yeah yeah, yeah.
0: And he's, so, and he, can you give us like a top three people should be looking at
2: uh well, uh, Dixit is an interesting one. Uh, oh,
0: Dixit is so good uh,
2: because it, it's all about ju- just generating stories based on inspiration from uh from from images. Um, oh gosh, uh, less ex- less explicit. I would I would suggest anything that uh, just just recently, um, Seasons just came out, um, uh, and that has some interesting dice drafting mechanics that that are that are really curious. That that basically like I want to do this thing. But I want to do it sooner than other people, or I want to decide that I will do the next thing sooner, or or whatnot. Basically, having some of those tactical decisions being a part of play and creating some emergent decisions, and of course, the resistance, which actually isn't a euro game, but uh, but resistance is, is fantastic for for generating a certain experience, in, in much the same way that you take Jenga uh, and you can you can make that dread. Uh, I think the Resistance is is an interesting example of taking something that you, that's a more traditional party game, but making that a really distinct narrative and, and really clear through line. And I would love to see someone make a, a more um, uh, narrative version of the Resistance. Very cool.
3: Sage, what do people not know about that they should? I'm going to go a step meta here um, and say playing more games. Um, So I think that a lot of people listening to this are probably somewhat interested in design, because this is in any design panel. Um, And the thing that I think more people need to be doing to design better is to play more games, not necessarily even RPGs, but like Adam and Daniel talked about, like, uh, play the Resistance, play Seasons, which I saw some people here at work playing and couldn't keep up with. It was insane. Um, Play XCOM. Like, learn from all the types of games that you like to play. Um, And I'm really lucky that recently uh, I changed jobs, and in my new work, uh, I've got to play a lot of games that either I only kind of knew or maybe I would played before, but now I get to play them with people who are interested in really dissecting them. And this is great stuff, like that's, the the thing to do to design better games is to play more games, more than anything else you can do to develop your design. Um, And the assumptions that we're talking about, like the things that annoy me with some existing games. I think can be traced back to people not playing very many games. Like, if you are a hardcore White Wolf player, and that game is all you've played, you're going to design with a certain set of assumptions. And the more things you try outside of that, the fewer those assumptions you're going to have. And you're going to be able to pick from this huge palette, all these brushes, to build the game you want. So uh, my thing that more people need to learn about is playing more games, in general, anything. And in particular games you hate, you learn a lot from those.
0: Right. Yes. Agreed. Yeah. I, uh, all right. So for me, um, let's see. I would say, um, I, I mentioned it earlier, but I, I really think people should try Doggy Dog, which is, I, I'll actually be like, everybody else is describing something different, so I'll just be like really straight up the middle. Doggy Dog is an awesome story game that will really teach you something about yourself, which is which is not typical of story games. Like, we do a lot of exploration, but there's a lot of distance that's kind of put in there sometimes that keeps us from maybe uh, you know, learning too much about who we are in the real world. But Dog Eat Dog is this game about colonialism and power um, and you can't help but sort of come to the game and then leave thinking like, whoa, I, my, my assumptions about who I am are like a little jack. So um, totally cool and you can just Google it and find it. There was a great Kickstarter. But if you missed it, like totally worth checking out. The designer, Liam, is an awesome guy who has a lot of cool ideas about the way colonialism works and changes us and affects us and it's just a, such an awesome experience that, like, it's, it's really cool, really intense, and I think you, everybody should check it out. It's, it
1: scares point. me, that game. Yeah, yeah, I'm a little intimidated by it myself.
0: Right. It's Well, what's interesting about it is it's not... Because there's this big discussion recently about, like, I won't leave you behind play versus safe space play, right? Like, you know, play where people are like, well, I'm going to do crazy things and we're all just going to kind of deal with it. It's not like that at all. Like, the game we played was very safe. Like, we could totally have had an X card on the board and, like, you know, nothing like that. It's just more, like, revelatory. Like, you go in and you think, like, I'm going to play this game this way. And at the end, you're like, wow, that didn't, that didn't go the way I thought it would at all. And, and it's very, very interesting. So not, like, emotionally disturbing, more like emotionally revealing, which, is, which I think really um, challenges a lot of assumptions, which is one of our big themes for today about, about ourselves. Cool. Well, thank you guys so much. Such an awesome panel the, the hours just flew by. Thank you, and thank you to all of our all of our viewers who stuck with us. Uh, we have, you know, really, 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 uh, you know, like awesome group of people who are who are watching, and, and thank you so much for your questions. Um, and uh, I think I think you, we're just so happy to have put this together. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Cool, guys. Well, good night to all our fans and and friends and people who stopped by and. Uh, look for us on the internet. All of us can be found on Google Plus, and are happy to, as you can tell, we we hate talking about this stuff. So
1: <laughs> it's you drag nice. into the conversation?
0: Leave me alone. I want to be alone. I
1: said, Get of
0: here. Hey, you guys. Our games art, <laughs> 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 and we're <you're> done. <laughs> Story game. Feel um, free to draw us into any number of conversations and Twitter, you know, back and forths and and we'd be we'd be thrilled to chat more about this so thank you all very much
1: good night night